During the coronavirus crisis and lockdown, Rabbi Katz will be delivering an informal pre-Mincha study session on Zoom every day at 6.50 p.m. If you're interested in joining, please send an email to rabbidkatz at gmail.com indicating that you would like to be added to the Zoom meeting, and you'll then be sent the link to access the Zoom learning session. Welcome to Jewish History with Rabbi David Katz, connecting the human side to Jewish history. For sponsorship opportunities or to support this podcast, please visit our donate page at www.support.rabbidavidkatz.com. Hi, it's Wednesday morning, and I undertook to do a Yardside podcast, a sort of a request um, of this week's sponsors, which is the Tolkoff family, actually. From Baltimore, Mayor Tolkov, but now in Rehoboth, in Israel, and Mayor's uh, one of the listeners to this, and he, we were talking about which names, which famous people to uh, talk about, and it came upon the fact that this week, or next week, whatever, is uh, the art center of Shmuel Moliver, very famous once upon a time, and controversial Rabbi of the 19th century, founder basically of religious Zionism in a, in a real sense. Uh, and I uh, was thinking about it, and we're going to do it. So this is this uh, podcast is being sponsored, as I said before, by the Tolkoff mayor and Debbie Tolkoff, who live in Rehoboth currently. Uh, if you're from Baltimore at all, you know, Tolkoff family is the horseradish. They're the big horseradish people. Uh... It's a famous uh, Baltimore brand. I had a brother, passed away years ago, who moved to New York, and we always say he converted from Baltimore to New York. But whenever he used to come back... Now, in New York, they have everything 10 times what you have in Baltimore. Baltimore's a small community, obviously, compared to New York, especially in terms of kosher products. In spite of everything, there used to be a joke in my family. Every time my brother's family came over here, there are certain things you could only get in Baltimore, and they would stock up on, which seemed crazy to me because you were in New York. And one of the things, they always got to get Tolkos horseradish. It was a big hit. Um, but Mayor and his wife now moved, made Aliyah live in, in, in Israel, Rehoboth, and this is being sponsored in honor of his father-in-law, Debbie's father, who is Dr. Stern, Dr. Ed Stern of New Jersey, who I'm told fled Germany in 1936 as a boy, aha, uh-huh, from that generation, Eliezer and Shlomo, and in memory of Debbie's late uncle, Norman Sassler of Philadelphia, which is of Nachman ben Dover Halevi. Um, and I said that uh, he's interested in, I guess, what we would call the original form of the of alternative religious Zionism, which is a fascinating 19th century phenomenon. Uh, which friends of mine have written about. Anyway, I'm talking about uh, Reb Shmuel Mohilover, Moliver. Mohilov simply means you're from the town of Mogilev which is, you know, in White Russia, but of course he wasn't even there. He was born in some place near Vilna. Moliver was a Litvak, Mamash uh, Litvak. And he's from, born in 1824, and he died around 1900, maybe a year or two, or maybe like 1898, 1899, something like that. So he lived all through the 1800s. Now, Litvish, Rabbonim, there are plenty of diamond dozen, you know, 
So what's different? So here is a very, everyone has a unique life. Shmuel Malavar, first of all, as I said before, was born near Vilna. That tells you right away. Second of all, came from a very chashva family in terms of the rabbinic aristocracy. His grandfather was a close Talmud of Chaim Velazhener, and his father was. And, you know, many, you know, one of those rabbinic families that they had money. And how do you have a rabbinic family you have money? The answer is, they don't practice the rabbinate. You get it? You go to yeshiva or whatever, become a big tamachahab. But then you uh, become the richest guy in, in your village. <laughs> so you don't have to be the rabbi. And then, basically, uh, if you are independently wealthy, you're not dependent on anybody else. You can tell the whole community, drop dead if you want to. Which was the dream of everybody once upon a time in the old country. I should will do whatever I want. Anybody doesn't like them. Tell them all gay fifing. So, but you'll only do that if you're not an employee of the community. <laughs> you understand? And so there's this model of yesteryear. It seems a little bit funny today, and that is a person wants to be a big Talmud Chacham. I'll use American terminology, even though it doesn't exactly work. You want to be a big Talmud Chacham, the biggest Talmud Chacham in town, but a millionaire. So whoever's a rabbi is a rabbi. He's like an employee, but you're the one that knows more. Something like that. So uh, he came from a family like that and, that, and that's part of the story. It's actually a very interesting part of the story. Because if you grow up with that background, you're kind of like very independent in your views. Very from, all these people are super from, and they're big learners, they all put in hours and hours a day in learning besides whatever they did. We're talking the old school here, uh, you know, what it was once upon a time. Now, Shmuel Mulliver was therefore born in this situation in the 1820s. Rechaim Velazhner died three, four years earlier. So the Velazhner she was under his son, Ritzel Velazhner, who I spoke about many moons ago. And he grew up in that town and was an Eloy, you know, one of these kids that was an Eloy from an uh, early age, like they used to have in the old days. The real thing. And he learned, I don't know, with his father, you know, some little town, you know, nobody's ever heard of. Uh, Chlubka or something like that. And really, I mean, that's, that's the name of the town, that's why nobody ever heard of it. Which there were dozens and dozens of these little places. And some of them had these small communities where they had some people really need to learn. So he would be for, like, for the local aristocracy of a town of 40 families, you know, that sort of thing. I estimate. Anyway, um, so he learned, you know, learned up a storm. And I would even surmise that his Iker learning they used to do in these towns because there ain't nothing to do in these places. We're talking about 1820s, 30s, Growing up, forties, there was no secular, you know, there's no library or anything in town. All you had, the only game in town, is the local shulim based marriage, and a few learners. So, if you play your cards right, you can learn up a storm. And like in the old days, he gets married when he's fifteen years old. And being already an Eloy, we're talking the old school over here. So he marries a rich girl, where the father agrees to support the son. So then you really have Torgdul Malcolm Echad, and had things played out. He would have spent the next 20, 30 years just like that, sitting and learning with no economic problems. And it's not like you're wasting time. Not like you're taking coffee breaks, you know. The old days where you're really putting your hours every day. There's no cheating over here. It's seriously learning. And I remember he went, and the idea was like this. Um, he's marrying this uh, rich girl. And like his family tradition, he'll take the money and he'll do half learning and half be a, a businessman, a, a merchant. I mean, at 15, 16, 17 years old, it's quite unusual for our standards today. So 
So imagine somebody like this in Baltimore or Israel, wherever. Imagine a guy who was very, very good in learning. And let's say he got married. I'll use a more modern example, just give you an example. So there's a guy today who was very, very good in learning. And suppose he married a rich girl at the age of 18. But he didn't want to be in a cola, get a check from somebody, be under anybody's wishes. So he said, you know, I'm going to open an a, a internet business online. And for a couple hours a day, I'll operate the internet business. And I'll make my money. And the rest of the time, I can sit and learn the way I want. And then he mamash isn't dependent on anybody. So, you know, that's a, that's a certain interesting model you don't see too often. You get it? Somebody's committed to heavy learning, but also wants to make his own parnosa, but in a way that, that enables it. Because in a regular job, you've got to put in 9 to 5, and more even. And, you know, that kind of interferes with uh, the kind of learning I'm talking about. But somebody that just... As I said before, the closest thing I can imagine would be a successful online business. So then you can do that, you know, in your own time and effort. And on the other hand, you can put in some really serious time in terms of quantity and quality into learning if that's what turns you on. So that's who our hero was. And when he, he did it for three years, then he went to Velocity Yeshiva, which is interesting. So, he, and he learned it for two years. Now, remember, his family is tight with the Hanhala. His father was... His grandfather actually had been a, a, a close student of Bukhain Velazhiner before the Velazhiner Shiva was open back in time of Vilnagov. That's the Yichas he came from. His father. So when he comes there, he's like a Yachsen. Plus, he's not on any Kolel stipend, is he? He's independently wealthy. So I don't know how they did it. You know, it's interesting. Here's a guy putting in two years in Velazhiner top Yeshiva. So he hang around and talk with all these big guys and learning. But on the other hand, he must have rented his own house, and uh, he must have operated his business, I can't imagine how, while he's also in the Kolel, or whatever you call it, in Volusian. It's just an unusual model. But when he's 20 years old, what happened often happened to him, and that is the father-in-law died, and all the money ran out, the Makora Parnosa. And I guess his business, I can only surmise, had been helped by the father-in-law, and uh, now it all c- collapsed. And then, unfortunately, he had to spend the rest of his life being a rabbi. Right? That's the only education he had. He was, it seems, best I can tell, you know, interested in secular studies to some degree, like the super from Maskelon were once upon a time. In other words, 99.9% Gemara, 0.0001% math, science, and that sort of thing. You had such people. Um, even the Vilna was to some degree like that. And, um, but really, the only training he has, he's, he, he, he's a gong, you know, I mean, I was like 20 years old, and he spends the rest of his career, so here we're talking from 1844 on, and he died like in 1890s, I think 1898, so he spends a career of uh, 50 years, 50-some years in the rabbinate. Now, I mean like this, the rove of a city. First, and, and he climbed the ladder as people once upon a time did. Meaning, in America, you'd say like this, first the rabbi of a small synagogue, then a larger synagogue, and finally a big synagogue. So in Europe, you first rab- the ones who were successful, first the rabbi of a small village of 10, 15, 20 Jewish families, poor, 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 then to fa- a, a community of 40, 50, 60 Jewish families, still poor but a little less so, then to a community of 100 families, you see what I'm saying? Until eventually you go to the top. That's what he did. That's what he did. Many did it. He did that line. 
So, you know, um, here, as I said before, here he is in the 1840s and 50s and 60s and so forth. Um, Robbing little towns uh, in his hometown where Mamish was poor, 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 and he was no longer the, the son of the richest guy in town. You know, that was, all the money fell apart. So that was tough. And then he moved to uh, these other little literature towns no one's ever heard of. Shockey and Suvalk, you've heard of. Actually, eventually he got to himself a nice stellar, relatively speaking, um, after 12 years or something like that in Suvalk. Um, uh, we've all heard of Savalkarov. Who was the, the redundant Lipschitz, I think? And why he was the Savalkarov later? And Suvalk was already a town of 6,000 Jews. That's huge. To be the, I'm talking about be the robe of the community, the Posik, the Abbezdin, the guy who does the Gitin, you know, the, the Arab, the Seldachamas, the whole thing for the town. So that means we're dealing with somebody who is a major learner. You don't get to have a job like that in Lithuania in the 19th century. Unless you know your stuff, in terms of lambdas and halacha. Uh, and this would put him in the 1860s. And in 1863, he became kind of famous for this. Um, you wouldn't know this. There was a big Polish rebellion against the Tsarist Empire. What happened, basically, without giving you too many details, was that by the time uh, the border is finalized after the French Revolution, the Napoleonic Wars, so Russia was given like 95% of the old Poland. And the Poles didn't like it. And, in eight, and twice, in 1830 and in 1863, they tried to rebel. Now this was stupid. How can the dumb little Poland hope to prevail against Russia? But they gave it a shot, and each time they were crushed. And each time they were crushed, they were crushed even tougher than the Russians. Without going to too many details. So in the 1860s, was an uprising of the Poles against Tsarist Russia. And, and the and Russian army crushed it didn't happen overnight, but it happened. And um, Lithuania, the country we're talking about, many don't know this. It used to be part of Poland. In other words, the people are Lithuanian, but the, uh, the culture was all Polish. And uh, people spoke Polish, except for the peasants. And the landowners, those the aristocracy in Lithuania, were Polish noblemen. That's how it went. Which is why Jews never learned Lithuanian. And when Lithuania became a country after the First World War, the Mamsha had to start from scratch and learn a new language because nobody knew the new language. He used to know Polish or Russian. And, um, and the Panovich wrote was, by the way, in the Lithuanian parliament for a while. But he couldn't speak Lithuanian well because, you know, he knows old Russian, a little Yiddish. So uh, this is the 1800s. So my point is that Lithuania was part of, the, of a war zone to some degree. Many don't know this. In the middle 1860s, because of the uprising of the Poles and the suppression by the Russian army, which meant the Jews were really in a bad situation. Because what do you do in such a case if you're Jewish and living in a, in, in a town, in a village? On the one hand, you don't want to go against your neighbors who are all supporting this Polish stuff, because then you look like you're, you're hated by your next-door neighbors, uh, and they'll kill you when they have a chance or something like that. On the other hand, you don't want to rebel against the Russian government. First of all, they're going to win. Second of all, why should the Jews, you know, support one over the other? Uh, so it was a very bad situation for Jews to be in. And uh, in every situation, the Jews had to decide, what, you know, what are they doing? By and large, 
the Jews sided with the Russian government, or let's put it this way, they tried to keep their heads down to the degree possible, obviously. Now, in the big cities, the Russian army occupied it, especially in Lithuania, you know, like Vilna and Kovnley's place, nothing to talk about. The Russians were there in big garrison strength. But in the countryside, they had all these guerrilla warfares and things going on. It's a whole tukufa people don't know about. And um, here you have somebody, uh, Shmuel Mulliver, who's a rabbi, I think, in Sufal. And what do you do? And uh, now he was famous for... Now, he used a, a, a... Let me put it this way. The rabbinic culture is heavy mispalm l'shom shalmachos. That's the old rabbinic culture. Because what are you supposed to do? Um, incidentally, as Americans, the Jews in the U.S., or the 13 colonies had this problem back in time American Revolution. Should they side with George Washington? Should they side with the British? You know, which way is it going? And the Jews kind of split. Half su to, uh, supported the American revolutionaries because of the same reasons. Because they didn't want to get in trouble with their next door neighbors. It's not that they were such American patriots. After all, if you're Jewish, what do you complain? Taxation without representation? The Jews have always had that, <laughs> you know? As a matter of fact, the British were much, much more tolerant and mild vis-a-vis -vis the Jews than any other ruler. So uh, I can guarantee you, a regular Jew living in 13 colonies, 1776, said, British government's fine, you know. But on the other hand, if you know what you're doing, if all the people in your town are patriotic and they're supporting the Americans, you're going to do it too. So just transpose that idea and put it onto Lithuania in the 1860s and you'll get what I'm saying. And so the famous story is that... Um, some Jews sided with the Poles. The Russian army found out about this. They arrested a bunch of people and uh, were going to hang them because they used to do that all the time. Years ago, I once saw this uh, movie in Polish, I think. Was it Russian? Pol I think it Polish. I forget what it's called. Maybe The Squadron or something like that. Which was a 19th century novel from the 1860 uh, rebellion. It's very realistic. And you see over there, because I'm always looking for these things for my lectures. And you see over there that they came to some town, the Russian army, and they got some Jewish boy or other, and they asked him questions. They didn't like what he said. They hanged him. You know what I'm saying? They hanged him. So, I mean, they did this all the time. So plenty of Jews were hanged or otherwise executed in this rebellion. And there were all these people from the town where he was, and it was Ervium Kipper, and he saved their lives. He went to the Russian general, and he said, listen, you're going to kill him. What can I say? Um... But let them come to Yom Kippur that they should do. It's like last confession. You know, Yom Kippur is a time for confession. It's just like the condemned man should have his, make his peace with his maker. And uh, it's a whole long story. And, you know, and the Russian general didn't want to do it, but finally he was persuaded to do it. And um, and the rabbi said, you know, you, you know me, I'm loyal to the government. I have a reputation and I'll bring him back. You're not going to you know, escape. And by the time he brought him back, by the way, you can imagine what a Yom Kippur that is. Imagine in your shul <laughs> is five, six, seven guys, hush of people in the town, and they're, I mean, this is like a, a, a rabbi's dream, so to speak. You know, can you imagine the sermon? We had, you know, on, on we say in the Sanatokov, right? Me, Yechem, me, Yomus, me, Bekitzo, me, Belo, Bekitzo. Rabbo said we have in front of us six men. This is Mamash, their last days on earth. And, you know, they're, they're, they're holding by the Sanatokov, and all of us are dominating for them and dominating for ourselves. I mean, my goodness, it must have been some scene. And the good news is by the time Yom Kippur was over, the Russian general changed his mind. 
And, you know, I guess he believed the rabbi that they weren't guilty or something like that. He let him go, which made him a big name, you can imagine, because that didn't happen too often. And I'll tell you that he himself later got a medal from the czar for being loyal to the Russian government, which always helped him. He took the medal, and uh, which probably was a cross or something like that. And the reason he did was, wherever he goes later, especially with Zionist activities, you show these Russian policemen, Russian generals, look at me, I have a medal from the government. Which was true. There was no deception involved. It was honestly acquired. But that way he can pursue Jewish stuff and the the army and the police and the Russian stupid uh, uh, you know bureaucrats aren't going to bother him so much because they'll say, oh, uh, this guy has a proven loyalty to, to the Tsarist regime. I repeat, there wasn't a deception. And so he was clever in this way, being able to use these things to help uh, Jews. You understand? So he pocketed that. And then he moved to a bigger town, Radom, which is more uh, Polish. And uh, uh, he was there for about a good 15 years. Then Radom is a bigger community. I told you, move up little by little, you know, higher, higher, higher till, uh, t- till you get over there. And what's really funny is that, I mean, here, you notice here you're talking about a town, probably 20,000 people, 15, 20,000 people. That's a lot. Okay? That's a lot. To be the rabbi of a town of 15,000, 20,000 people. I mean, I just want you to think about it. You, I know people have big shoals, big synagogues. Who's the rav of a city? A city. You know, acknowledged by everybody's official rabbi. Uh, 15,000 people. Um, and later, he ended up even in a bigger city. So, to, what I'm trying to get at is this. To be the rabbi of a big town, you have a whole... It, it, it's it's um, you have a variegated uh, community, especially in nineteenth century Russia. Uh, not everybody's from, uh, not everybody's this, not everybody's that. You might have a call you throw, and how do you deal with that? How do you deal with that? If you try to make a gzeirushin at sibir yichol lama, but it's not gonna work. On the other hand, you don't want to go too far to the left, and so it's a, it's a trick. It's like Moshe Rabbeinu having to deal with all these people. Remember, there's a famous chazal that says. What I remember, I, mean, I just haven't remembered this from the Chilter of Yunanasi says, What's the most impressive act of Moses as he stands about to split the Red Sea? He didn't know he was about to split the Red Sea. And Rabbi Yunanasi says, How is he able to deal with all these different types of Jews? Because some people said, Let's surrender to Pharaoh, let's go back. Others said, Let's fight. Others said, Let's commit suicide. You know, all kinds of different people going crazy. How do you run a Jewish meeting with a hundred different uh, opinions out there? And this was a rough once upon a time. I mention this because it's very different nowadays where the Jewish community become highly fractionated. And so somebody can say like this, I'm the rov of the Agudah Shul over here, so I can do whatever I want because my Baal will listen no matter how from it is. And anybody who won't listen, join another shul. And another guy could have a left-wing congregation, another guy could have a middle congregation. So it's, it's broken up in little pieces and everybody can follow you know, a, a, a very ideologically a narrow and rigid line, because that works for your particular kehillah. Because uh, somebody doesn't like to start another kehillah. But what do you do in the old days when your kehillah has 20 different types? As we would say today, 20 different shuls, 20 different elements. Uh, are you against Zionism? Are you for Zionism? Are you against secular studies? Are you for secular studies? Are you against, you know, um, you know what I mean, modern stuff? Are you for modern stuff? It's not Pushit, okay? The great Rabbanim of the 19th century, 
especially in Lithuania, White Russia, tried their best. I'm talking about Yitzhak Inspector, the Archashok I mentioned the other day. You have people like that, the Netziv. Um, they were quite aware that their Balabatim include left, right, and center. And, uh, and the trick is to hold everybody within the Parsha, which is not easy, okay? Which is not easy. Because if you make the mistake of pushing too rigid a line on one thing, the others break away. Um, and they didn't want to do that. They thought that would be very negative. It is more clawy throw type um, activities. And Roshimo Muller is a classic example of what I'm talking about. And so uh, when he's in Radom, and by the way, he himself personally was extremely frummy type, meaning he was a chassid. By that I mean he had a lot of chumras to he himself, uh, you know, uh, prophet. But not to so tell somebody else to do it. You get a lot of chumras. Now, um, which is, you know, the best of the old school. Now, what's interesting, there's a very famous story, I've got to tell you this. When he was in Radom, so his personal hanhagas, uh, he was a holy man. So he said, you know, stayed up late and and, and, and was machmer on the kashas for himself and all this stuff. Not for somebody else, for himself. So the Hasidim in Radom, which was a Polish town, got attracted and they, they start putting pressure. He should become a Rebbe. And he said, oh, that's, not my, that's not who I am. I don't want to be a Rebbe. And they, and they start pulling stick on him. And you know how it works. The more you say, I'm not worthy to be a Rebbe, the more they say, ooh, look how, look how uh, um, humble he is. You know, the more you say, I'm not Masugal for this. Oh, look how humble he is. And it got to be a problem. And they would show up at his house for Shalashudas and want to turn it into a tish. And he was a misnagat. I don't mean uh, ideologically. He was not Hasidic. And the famous story is that, you know, they, these guys started showing up to his house on Shabbos because they didn't have Shalashudas and Shul. It's a Litvak. And um, they started singing songs. And they started asking him to say a dry Torah. And basically they're turning with the rebel without him knowing it. And so he figured there's one way he can put a stop to this. And next time they came to Shabbos, he had his wife sit next to him for Shal Shudas. And that was the end of that, because the Hasidim, you know, he said he ain't no Rebbe. And uh, uh, the presence of a woman killed the whole idea. And that was the end of that project. Now, in here in Ranum, we're talking about the 1870s. This was a period in Russian Jewry. People just don't know this. I mean, you know, this is historical stuff. When I would say the left wing was the most powerful in terms of Yiddishkeit in Russia. Because the 1870s was a time when the Russian Jews uh, dreamed the dream that Russia is going to become a democratic country and that they should become Russianized the same way the German Jews have become Germanized. And uh, the most important thing out there is to figure a way to unite the Jews with the Russians. I know it sounds crazy today when I'm talking at that time. And it was uh, because it was Tsar Alexander II, and by relative terms, it was liberal, only in very relative terms. And they wanted, they wanted, wanted that Russia should become just like England or America or something like that. Now, you and I know this was nuts, but I'm talking about at that time. And the result was, within the Machna, within the Jewish camp, there was a lot of push. This is the maximum years of the Haskalah, for example, and the Haskalah, especially in the sense of trying to uh, elide the differences between Jews and Russians and uh, push the Lemurichol, and not only Lemurichol, but, um, you know, uh, as we would say today, to modify observance. There was even a, a radical left wing, the Haskalah, which wanted to reform Judaism, was Galilean Bloom, and so forth. 
And uh, I can tell you is that within Jewry in the 1870s, for like 1868 to 1881, uh, it was intense among the Jews of Russia, which was the largest Jewish community in the world by far, millions. And uh, the newspapers, um, which were the Moskilic newspapers, came out like once a month, once a week, the Magid and Hatzfirah, and uh, this, or how that, you know, all these famous Hebrew newspapers uh, were always pushing, because they sincerely believed it, all this muscular stuff. And um, and they were very powerful and very important newspapers. Uh, frankly, even the big rabbis used to write in there, although they were the opposite of crazy about writing in these papers, but this is what everybody read. It's hard to explain today. Once upon a time, in all the towns in Russia... In Lithuania and Belarus and Ukraine and all these places. On Friday came the newspaper, and the newspapers were like getting, you know, people today have from papers like the Mishpach and Ami. That time you got all these Hebrew newspapers. And that's what people found fascinating because if you're living in a little town, you don't know what's going on out in the world. So you rely on these papers for your news about Judaism, for your news about the world. Uh, and it's all, you know, propaganda, it's all um, ideological. Until. The, the firm started their own newspaper in, pa- in Paris called Halavonon. It was meant to, that's the first from newspaper. I guess you'd say today, the first Dati or the first Haredi newspaper. And it was a, it's a long story, but that's what happened. And I won't say it's a great paper, but that's where all the rabbis wrote. It defines itself as a Haredi newspaper. And therefore, we saw Salanter and Nitziv and Sikhanan. Well, not him, but uh, many others, especially Shmuel Moliver, used it to propagate their ideas. So that was already, if you got the, the Halavonob, it means you're from me. And in Ivrit, it's exactly like a Moskilic newspaper, except the content is Haredi, you see? And uh, what's the name used to write there? The Secretary of Yitzhak Ohana, the Yaakov Levi Lipschitz. There was a whole big uh, group over there. And uh, this is how Shmuel Moliver became famous in the public day of... And sorry, at that time, because he was a rabbi of a city of 15,000, 20,000 people, and you can't simply say, to use modern language, you can't simply say, no limunicho. It's stupid. The, the kids want, you know, there's a, whole, there's a certain element out there that's going to get a secular education. Is there a way to have a Jewish thing of doing it? In other words, is it better to have a day school with English and Hebrew, or is it better they should just go to Russian public school? They're not push it. Girls, what are you going to do for education on girls? Should you simply say... There's no, uh, never been a firm framework for teaching girls, and therefore we're not going to have one? Or do you say, listen, they're going to go to a Russian school or a Polish school and become completely anti-Jewish. So we've got to come up with some new framework. Meaning the things that you and I are familiar with were radical at that time. You know, T.A., Beis Yaakov, that sort of thing. Uh, a, a Jewish press at, at that time. And, and the trouble with Orthodox Jews, they're very conservative. And the conservative can sometimes mean you can't make necessary adjustment. And he's already complaining about this 1870s, but it was too early. People thought he's like too uh, too left wing. Now they didn't think he personally is not from. Everybody knew he's a super from, but it's Hashkafas. They thought his approach is too conciliatory, and will be in the long run negative for the overall from position. Those are the big battles that going at that time. And he was saying, "You guys are all wrong. You know, I'm there in the front lines." I see, uh, you know, what's happening. I see where the younger generation is going. And the vast majority of the younger generation are not interested in yeshivas. The vast majority of the younger generation 
if we want to hold on to them. He didn't use these words. I'm putting words in his mouth, but this is the content. He says, you want to hold it to the younger generation, you better come up with some kind of term, Derek Harris. You get it? You better come up with some kind of school system, you know, like Hirsch or some, or, or some variation therein. And that was considered too much. So it goes to show you, you know, that he was, now that he was in, in a town of, with 15,000, 20,000 Jews, so it made him think in a larger scale, Claudius Yisrael. At least Claudius Yisrael, Russian Empire, which is millions and millions of Jews, by far the largest Jewish community, quantity and quality. And uh, this is bothering him. Now, um, in the 1881, came the famous assassination of the Tsar, followed by huge pogroms. And then everybody saw that the Russians are not trying to assimilate the Jews. The Russians hate the Jews and like to kill them. And the most they want to just convert them. And all of a sudden, anti-Semitism in a big, vicious way raised its head. It always was there, but in an unprecedented way. And the government didn't interfere with the pogroms. A whole long thing. I did a, a whole um, a lecture series this last year. It's probably online somewhere. Be, if not, it, 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 I'm sure it's some, it is somewhere. Uh, and it was a shock, by the way, to the Mosquillum, uh, who had been dreaming a dream. It was a shock to many others. And thousands of Jews, by the way, were uh, uh, beaten up or killed or raped. A lot of rapes. And uh, were shocked. And they started fleeing Russia. And this is the beginning of the two, three million Jews, million, I say, who flee Russia between 1880 and 1920, let's say. Um, which accounts for American Jewry and British Jewry and South African Jewry and all the rest of it. Argentinian Jewry. There's millions of Jews, millions, fled Russia. And this is Tsarist Russia. It's not like the communists. The Tsarist government said like this. But Vakasha, you want to leave? Gesundheit ain't no problem. <laughs> As the uh, interior minister under Tsar Alexander III, Count Ignatiev, said, the door to the West is always open. Meaning you can, you can leave. And that began a new tkuf in Judaism, when millions of Eastern European Jews are fleeing. You see, until then, Eastern European Jews lived in Eastern Europe. And for the most part, they stayed there. So if you're a French Jew, all you see is French Jews like you. Or a British Jew, or an American Jew, you just see Jews like you. You never see Jews from Eastern Europe. But now all of a sudden, come in waves. All over the place, in every country. Into Germany, into France, into England into British Empire, into USA, you know, millions. Now, the question was, when this first started out, what should the Jews do? Now, some, it, it's very complicated. I'm not going to be able to do justice to it just in a little podcast. But just to touch 1% on, on the subject, where are all these Jews going to go? The um, rich Jews from Western Europe? are very assimilated, they say, don't come to my country. And the reason they're thinking is simple. Right now we're all having trouble because you have these Chil Hashem reports on the news that all these frummies and chassin and whatever are not paying it, uh, not obeying the uh, corona restrictions and, you know, they find a wedding here and a funeral there. It's a Chil Hashem. It gets in the paper and the police and all the rest of it. It's a bummer. Now, people say like this, what do we need these guys for? They're making trouble, make anti-Semitism for everybody else. That is exactly how the Western Jews, especially the rich ones, look to Eastern European Jews. We don't want them coming here to England or to France or to Germany or, or anywhere else. 
because they're gonna they're not gonna listen to the laws, and they're gonna be obnoxious, and they're gonna cause anti-Semitism over here. So where are they going? Now, if really, if you would ask these rich Jews in the West, they say this: stay in Russia and tough it out. Meaning there were schmoes. They said you should suffer that we living in the West shouldn't be bothered by your presence, which will increase anti-Semitism. But that wasn't going anywhere because the masses are not listening to that. Jews were fleeing over the border from Russia to nearby countries like to Galicia, uh, which is part of the Austro-Hungarian Empire, uh, and they ain't listening. And so they're going to go somewhere. The answer was go to America. <laughs> right? At least you won't go to Western Europe. Go to America. It's America in the 1880s, and this country was going through a tremendous capitalist expansion. At that time, pure capitalism. No social security, no unemployment insurance, none of that kind of stuff. The union's just barely starting. And big business was expanding like crazy. And you need constant flow of cheap labor. And so at that time, America in the 1880s, 1890s and all that, took in zillions of white, as long as they're white European immigrants from uh, Europe. And uh, that fed the industrial uh, complex that was expanding like crazy in USA. And so, basically, if you're Jewish and move to America, you'll find a job. I had to be a low-paying job. That's what's capitalism in those days. But, you know, you'll find a job. And that's what they did. They shifted to America. Now, you suppose you're Rabbi Shmuel Mulliver, or even other big Rabbanim over there. It's a Chel Hashem. Why do I say it's a Chel Hashem? Here's a, a funny sensibility. Here, the Jews are leaving Eastern Europe. They, under unforeseen circumstances. If Jews leave the Gullahs, they should go to Eretz Yisrael. It's a Chel Hashem. The Jews have the opportunity to go to Eretz Yisrael, and they don't. Bishlim won the past in Jewish centuries. Nobody had the opportunity. Between the wars and life and the sea travel and a hundred other reasons, Jews had ended up in Eastern Europe back in the 1400s, 1500s. They ended up in this country in the 1500s, 1600s. They ended up in that country due to the you know, persecutions and politics of that country. But now it's 1880s. And it is possible, and it's not too hard, to take a ship and move to Palestine. And there were a tiny number of Jews there already. It's slowly but surely are growing. Slowly but surely growing. The Jews should leave, um, and those who want to go should go to uh, Eretz Yisrael. Um, you know, the Turks won't stop you, they figured. That's what they thought. And um, Shalom Yisrael. It's, it's, it's like a, a, a bazillion. It's a chil Hashem. They have a chance to go, and now you have an impetus to go because of the pogroms. And instead, you want to go to America. Plus, all the Rabbanim realized at that time, you go to America and become not from. And in their mind, they dreamed that the move to Palestine would be from. When I say from, I don't mean from me, but from, you know, middle of the road, traditionalistic, uh, orthodox, traditional. But that is not what happened. 99.99%, I mean that much, went to America in the West. But with Shmuel Moliver and some people like him, they said, no, no, they should go to Israel. And this really started the uh, movement among a few, but a very, very small few, to uh, do what they called the the movement that Jews should move to Israel. Now, he meant Jews move to Israel and be as from as they are in Russia. I didn't say more from. 
Put me on Russia. What did you What do you have in 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 White Russia and Lithuania and Latvia and Ukraine and all the rest of it? Most Jews are what we would call today standard Shomer Shabbos. Uh, they're not necessarily big scholars, but they're you know pretty doggone traditional, and uh, most. And um, I didn't say that they're machmir, the charedim or anything like that, but they live a Jewish life. So as the Nitzib said. Same way you can keep Shabbos in, in, in Vilna, keep Shabbos in Jerusalem. Um, that's one Mahalach. So therefore, they moved to Israel, and they already started the idea of, um, of trying to uh, not just move in and make one big uh, Jewish community a slum in Jerusalem or something like that, which could have worked in my opinion, but that's not what they thought. They said, no, Jews should start to um, work the land and make their own Jewish towns. So just like you had in Eastern Europe, cities where the majority were Jewish, make towns in Israel, majority will be Jewish. Now, this is a rabbinic way of looking at it. It's also true that some of the Maskilim, some who have been opposed to Jews moving to Israel, now change their mind because of the pogroms, including some of the very anti-religious ones. And these are the guys who created, in the 1880s, um, the modern cultural Zionism, as it came to be known, which sought to that the communities that are now going to be created in Israel will be not from, will be post-religious, secular. And this was the problem, because I just described two groups that want Jews to move to Israel. The rabbis, out of from reasons, the maskilim, the left-wing maskilim, I should say, out of uh, secular reasons, out of anti-from reasons, uh, you know, and it's like two opposites. You know, how, how does that work? But on the other hand, they do both agree that Jews should move to Israel. So Shmuel Mulliver became convinced, already in the 1870s, that the only idea, you, you, you will not be able to wean away the younger generation from all the European ideals that are attracting them, as Russian nationalism, as materialism, as uh, secularism, as atheism, that's the era of uh, Darwin and Freud and all that, they need a big ideal. The ideal should be to build up a state of Israel or, or Eretz Israel. He wasn't thinking necessarily of state of Eretz Israel. And so these two groups, who really wouldn't have ordinarily been in bed together, got into bed together. Because one was the rabbis and those types, the right-wing maskilim, who wanted that there should arise in Israel a whole bunch of Jewish communities uh, under the Turkish Empire, which will be uh, from when I say from, like we said today, Shama Shama's Balabatish, that's fine. Shama Shama's Balabatish. Uh, out of that, there will come yeshivas and other things like that. But it should be a mass population of people, all of whom, as we would say today, are basic Shama Shabbos. And then you had the other group, which were looking for something different. And the leaders of the other group were like Lillian Bloom and eventually Achad Ha'am and people like that, who wanted to use the opportunity of the new communities in Israel to create a new Judaism, which was secular. In other words, let's put it this way. They wanted a Judaism that would be atheist. I'll um, be very clear about that. So, could these two groups cooperate? They tried. Well, Shmuel Mulver became the guy who tried. Because eventually, the, the, the pogroms were in 1881, and it's a very complicated story, but by 1884, they formed and this is the proto-Zionist movement. The Chovetzion which established branches all over the world, tried to, including America, sell like this. Let's raise money and send Jewish Jews to live in Israel 
as farmers, in Jewish communities, let's buy land, let's uh, support the farmers until they're self-sustaining, and little by little, that'll be the best possible outcome uh, because the Jews will return there to Israel, which is a supreme value, I repeat, a supreme value on its own. And in addition to that, you'll have like a new uh, 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 excellent Jewish community because they won't be, because they'll be Jewish, Yiddish. They won't be Russians. They won't be patriots of Germany or France. Or they'll be patriots of Jewish. That's good. You know what I'm saying? So um, the problem is it costs money. And the Russian Jews, the rich ones, didn't want to have anything to do with this for a whole bunch of reasons. They're really anal. Uh, Baron Gunsberg and the others, a bunch of jerks. And, um, you know, I have a hundred reasons not to, not to um, participate in this. Because the money was there. The money's always there. And so, Shmuel Mulliver was the only guy who talked tachlis because he'd been in the rabbi business. You want to get something done, you got to raise the money to do it. On the other hand, once you raise the money to do it, you can tell everybody to drop dead. You got the money. And um, so he tried in Russia and he got no, no, no for an answer for all the rich people. So then he left Russia on a, on a money-raising uh, um, expedition. This is a very famous story. It's been legendary, and sometimes um, the stories have been touched up. <laughs> Not exactly factual. But he left Russia, went to Germany, and hit all the rich German Jews, and they didn't want to have nothing to do either. And this kind of warmed down, you know, because you keep getting no for an answer. It kind of makes you feel bad. And... He did not want to look like a schnorr. I forgot to tell you an interesting story. When he was the rabbi in Radom, um, which he, the rabbi of a town of, as I said before, 15,000 people, he must have had a, you know, by the standards of Russia, a decent salary. I imagine, I'm just speculating, I imagine a decent salary in those days was uh, 600 rubles a year, 800 rubles a year, something like that. You know, the rubles worth money. During those years, guess what? He played the lotto, and he won 20,000 rubles. <laughs> now, he hit the jackpot today, which by the standards of those, he was like, the, you know, like, like, like the, it's not the Powerball. It's not that kind of money, but it's a lot of money, 20 grand, 20,000 rubles. Because uh, rubles was, uh, at that time, based on gold. That made him a rich man by the standards of that day. And uh, there's all these stories here, by the way. He went on a, on a health, what do you call it? He went to a spa. And while he was there, it was Shabbos. How's the story go? It's all these mices, you know. Uh, went to the spa in Germany, and somebody stole his money. And it was Shabbos. He didn't call the cops. Isn't that interesting? I told you, he was a real frummy. And, you know, because it's Shabbos. You know the halach and the shulchan Shabbos, you have to be happy. And after Shabbos was there, he called the cops. And everybody figured it's all over. In fact, I remember he came to this spa and he came with the money, but all of a sudden he's broke and all the other people thought he was faking. He just came there as a panhandler, you know. He's going to show up and then say, oh, I had money, I lost it. Can somebody pay for my weekend? Uh, if I remember correctly, Ralph Hildesheimer found that and sent him some money to cover the, to, to, to pay the hotel bill. And the long and the short of it is, one of the uh, janitors or maybe one of his uh, servants wasn't Jewish, stole the money and, and uh, 20, 20 grand. That's, uh, I mean, that's more than $200,000. I don't know exactly what 20,000 rubles is, but it's more than a quarter million dollars. It's, by today's standards, 
it's more by today's standards. Uh, although I'm speaking in the Corona time when the deflation is hitting, but you know, by the standards of a year ago, I imagine it's something like half a million dollars by by our money today, or or maybe more. Uh, something it was a nice sum of money because a half million doesn't go that far nowadays. Over years, twenty thousand rubles went a long way over years. I don't know how much. That's a lot of money. And the long and the short of it is, the German. This is Germany. The German police found the guy as he's about to get on the boat to go to America with the stolen money. They arrested him and the money, and they returned it to the rabbi. So he himself personally was not poor. And he was very careful whenever he went on these uh, fundraising expeditions, trying not to look like a schnarrer. And, you know, people would, would offer him money, and personally he said, I'm not taking a penny from me, which always shocked everybody. Um, there was some millionaire, I, I, I don't know if it's a true story or not, but I heard it. There was some millionaire in uh, Germany, I think it was, or maybe it was in France, and when he wouldn't take money, the guy said, the <laughs> first time I met a rabbi, especially Eastern European rabbi, who turned down money. But he wasn't interested in himself. He's interested to raise money for the cause. And he kept being turned down by all the uh, millionaires. And um, one of the problems was, it was this is going to be a problem with his whole approach. For the Frum, like the Frum millionaires in Frankfurt, he, it, the project was not Frum enough. For the non-Frum millionaires, it was too Frum. You know what I'm saying? So, um, and then he came to Paris, and he got turned down by everybody over there. But finally, finally, the chief rabbi of France, Soto Khan, who was a nice guy, said, I'm going to make you a, a meeting with Rothschild, who doesn't have anything to do with anything Jewish, but I think maybe, maybe you'll be my sleep with him. Um, this is Baron Edmund Rothschild, and they had a legendary meeting in which he won Rothschild over to support of Chibatzion, of uh, proto-Zionism. And Rothschild, of course, then supplied all the money. And whatever projects happened in Palestine with the new Yishuvim, like Zichron Yaakov, you know, Benyamina, and, uh, Gadera, all those communities, Petah, Tikva, and so forth, is often the Rothschild money. Um, it was complicated, but, uh, you know, and it caused a lot of difficulty. It was all the Rothschild money. Um, and the story of the meeting of the Russian rabbi and Rothschild uh, is legendary, and therefore it's been highly, you know, uh, what's the right word, uh, fluffed up and added a lot of false legends to it. But the bottom line is, he went in to see Rothschild with, um, with the uh, chief rabbi of France with him, so that gave him like a certain, uh, you know, chashivas. Basically, the chief rabbi of France was a nice guy. He said, listen, I'm vouching this guy's not some schnar in the Velterine. He's a real thing, and he's a chashiva guy. I know he looks to you just like a regular Russian rabbi with a long beard, but he's more than that. And Rothschild gave him a hearing. And the famous story was that um, he spoke to Rothschild, and he said, it's probably true. It's a famous story where he said, I'm an old-fashioned rabbi. I can only speak in rabbinical terms. And so I'll start with the Parsha of the week. And Moshe said he's a Kavad Peh, you know, and uh, he couldn't speak well. Let's say he stuttered and that, that sort of thing, if you go with that Mahalach. And the, the question is raised, why did God pick somebody like Moshe if he couldn't speak well? And the answer is, he said, this is a drushes around, really. And the answer is, he said to Rothschild, that uh, if Moshe was a good speaker, he would say the reason the Jews followed him out of Egypt was because he was a demagogue, he was a good talker. 
You know, it could be a pie piper. You can, you can persuade people for anything. And that's why he persuaded Pharaoh to let the Jews go. And that's why he persuaded the Jews to follow him. On the other hand, if Moshe is a terrible speaker, he's a kavad peh, and nevertheless Pharaoh lets him go, and nevertheless the Jews follow him into the desert, must be that the cause was powerful, not the speaker. The cause was amazing. And that's how I'm speaking to you. I'm not a good speaker, he said, but the cause is amazing, you know, the cause of Eretz Yisrael. And, you know, Ross highlighted that part, and he said, how much money do you want? And he said, I don't want any money. I, what I want for you is to be, I want you to be my in the sugi. I want you to be committed. You know, I want you to look into this because I want to win you over. And he liked that approach also. It was a clever thing to say, by the way. And so, um, Rothschild, this is the beginning where Rothschild, this is Edmund Rothschild, uh, you know, became interested in, in Zionism, shall we say. That's not the right word. It wasn't Zionism, but Eretz Yisraelism. And uh, he was a, a, a assimilated French Jew, but he's a weirdo. Every one of these Rothschilds were zillionaires. I mean, zillionaires. And uh, the money he had at that time was incredible. And, you know, each one, when you're rich, you can do whatever you want. Each one had their um, pet hobbies. I'm serious. You look up the Rothschild family, they're nuts. This guy was into zebras, you know, drove around in a carriage with zebras. And another guy was into botany. Another guy was into all kind of Michigas. So, Edmund Rothschild has Michigas and also. Some of them were into racehorses. You know, it's sad. It's sad. You understand? It's what they call the Gauls Hashkina. But it happened. So, looking back historically, we'd say like this. This Rabbi Shmuel Mulber persuaded Edmund Rothschild, Palestine should be one of your hobbies. <laughs> Get it? Palestine should be one of your It wasn't the only hobby. He had a big yacht. He was interested in wine, you know. But one of the things is Palestine, and even if it's not at the top of the list, but to get number two or three on the list of a zillionaire means you get a lot of money. It's a funny story. Now, it's not push it, because, and by the way, I don't know if I've ever said this before, I'm sure I did. This is just very interesting to me. Edmund Rothschild was the son of James Rothschild. I know it doesn't mean anything to you. That's one of the five sons of the original Rothschild, Mary Amstel Rothschild. The original guy in the Frankfurt ghetto was from. His kids, he sent off in different places to found branches of the bank and the business. Uh, you know, one of them went to London, and, uh, you know, uh, one of them went to, uh, you know, another city, and one of them went to Naples, so, uh, and one Vienna. So this one, James, uh, Jacob, he went, Jacob, he went to Paris, and uh, very, a very genius in the finance. And James Rothschild, uh, let's put it this way, he, he used to be the expression, we got to Paris, you know, you want to live a, a ultra, uh, what's the right word, hedonist lifestyle, it's like God in Paris. You know what I'm saying? No, it's this, the closest thing I could say, even though it's not a good example, is spend, the, you know, you live your life in, 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 in Vegas or something like that. You know, it's ultimate luxury, wine, women, and song. Wine well, Women's Song. And because he was such a rich and powerful banker, they had Wine Women in Song. So he was the opposite of a firm lifestyle. On the other hand, the Rothschilds never switched to reform. So he wasn't Orthodox, and his relatives were Orthodox. And so, you know, he had like a, a, a palace that had a kosher kitchen and a non-kosher kitchen. There's a lot, lot to talk about over there. So this Edmund Rothschild grew up in a funny household. And I remember James Rothschild didn't marry until relatively late in life. And then he married a cousin, and so the kids were raised in this 
extremely weird atmosphere that partly ultra hedonist and super Frenchy Frenchy. On the other hand, there also were Jews who in some ways kept Shabbos, partially, and Yom Kippur and other things. It was it's extremely weird. But I'm gonna tell you something interesting. No one's ever noticed this, except me, as far as I know. Um, Jacob Katz, the famous historian, has an article on Metzitza Bepeh, that in the 19th century was a big um, controversy. It's one of the first things the reform attacked, because they said when you do Metzitza Bepeh, it's spreading syphilis and gonorrhea and all kind of other venereal diseases. It wasn't true, but it might be. What do I know? And even today, a lot of people say, better use a tube. And uh, indeed, the Chazam Sofer and Samson Rebbe Hirsch, Rebbe Zalchanan, Chaim Brisker, everybody in the course of the 19th century came to advocate using the tube. Many people don't know this. And that's what happened. Alpha became, Messiah Pet is also a big Indian. And so, to the real frummies, uh, how can you even think of tampering at a bris with a Messiah of a pet? And this became one of the items of French Reform Judaism. Now, in France, the Jewish religion never mamish went reform, but they, the rabbinate and the richy rich balabatim forced on the orthodox, which was the official rabbinate in France, um, certain reforms, certain changes. It's a whole long story. I can't get into it right now. Uh, although they remained officially orthodox. And one of them was no mitzitzah bepeh. And it was a big deal in the 1840s. And James Rothschild was the official head of the Consistoire General, the official uh, Jewish uh, organization that's supposed to run everything, naturally, because he's the zillionaire. And um, on the other hand, he had a son born in 1843. And his relatives are coming. And he knew for his relatives, he got to have been of a pet. But he himself and the other big Frenchies in Paris, they were ones who passed the law they can't have Matisse Pet anymore. And they forced the Mohels in, in Paris to swear that they wouldn't do it. And, and one guy didn't listen, and he was arrested. It's against the whole story. And then James Rothschild himself had a son. And he knew for his relatives, you have to have Pet. It's not a bris, Pet. And so if you Rothschild, money's no object. And so what he did was he imported for the baby a Mohel from London, who therefore wasn't uh, under the, uh, didn't have to swear in Paris that he wouldn't do, do Metzitza. And the bris was held in the Russian embassy or the German embassy, whatever, therefore it wasn't on French soil. So from a technical legal perspective, they didn't violate the Taconis. This is a little bit like the shtick you hear now. Somebody say, well, I'm having a minion. That's not in Baltimore. It's in the consulate downtown, so it's not technically in Baltimore, you know. It's that, that kind of approach. Uh, but when he Rothschild, nobody could, could say anything to him. This baby was the only one who had the Mitzitzah Peh was Edmund Rothschild. With Edmund Rothschild. And I'm, this is a mystical, I'm just, it's just interesting to me. For the rest of his life, he never understood why he had some kind of connection with Jewish stuff in Israel, even though you wouldn't think that it would, it would be over there. Right, let me take a pause for a second. Okay, um, had to take a break for something. I was talking about the pecan fact, which is obviously a speculation, obviously, that this one Rothschild, who the father went to the trouble of doing the old-fashioned way, and Chitzabapah is the only one who had any kind of feeling for Israel. 
Um, but it's a very complicated story. From 1881 to 1890, the last 15-20 years is like the most consequential in Jewish history from the part of Rabbi Shmuel and Because, as I say, what emerged out of all this was the formation of something called the Chovetzion movement, the Chibatzion movement, which was clearly and explicitly a combining of the from and the not from. That's what it was. And one head was Rabbi Shmuel Mulliver. He's in charge of the Fromis, the rabbis, the Balabatim that are uh, Shomer Shabbos. Uh, you know, that I would say in general, certain Gedolim, plus what we would call today the modern from, I repeat, modern from Balabatim element. That's really who it appealed to mostly. The Gedolim would include people like the Netziv and Rebizu Kohan Inspector and people like that. Even though at the same time, um, you'd also have, you know, other rabbis who, uh, who opposed it. And then you'd have the Nanfrum, uh, which would be people like uh, Dr. Leon Pinsker, who wrote the famous auto-emancipation, a super uh, uh, assimilated uh, guy, who was shocked by the um, uh, pogroms and the... Uh, disappointment in the Russian culture didn't come through for the Jews, and reacted to it, not by becoming from, they couldn't do that in the 19th century. People are seriously convinced there is no God. You can't shake them out of that in the 19th century. But can they do something Jewish? And now it raises the whole question, and this was the controversy of the 1880s and 1890s, which is, is it a good to have a combination of the from and not from? There are arguments in favor, arguments against. The arguments in favor run the whole gamut. Uh, you know, at least get them doing something Jewish instead of assimilating totally into the Gaish. At least um, get them connected with, with something that benefits Klai Yisrael. At least do something constructive, build a Beretz Yisrael, which is a, a big value. Um, the arguments against are basically boil down to the following. Um, is it good, is it wise to combine somebody who's not from with somebody's from? Meaning, Will the good rub off on the bad? Will the bad rub off on the good? This is a, 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 a big question that is throughout Jewish history. And, um, you know, a classic example of this is in the Bible, where you have the story in the book of Malachim and Devarim, Kings and Chronicles, where King Yehoshaphat of, of Yehuda, who was a real from king, hooked up, teamed up with Achav, the king of Israel, for the most idealistic of reasons, but was rebuked by a prophet for doing so. And he said, you shouldn't team up with the Russia. Now, um, one would think, and Yoshava was a very from guy. Look at the Tanakh. And the Chazal say even bigger things about him. And yet, by the time the story's over, it seems he made a terrible mistake. God strongly disapproved. And in the long run, if you theorize, if you, if you go through the story in the book of Malachim, and Yaman, you'll see that Yoshafat uh, made chasanas with Achav. In other words, my son married your daughter, and my daughter married your son, you know, that kind of thing. And the daughter-in-law, Asalia, eventually killed out uh, her own children and grandchildren and tried to take over the country. Uh, according to some sources, Asalia you know, killed out the whole family of King David. It's a little bit weird. The reason I say it's weird, but that's the story. The reason I say it's weird is, Stelzach, for as they say, David and Melch had many kids. 
Shlomo Melch had a thousand wives. He definitely had many kids. Some of these other kings after him, Shlomo's son, grandson, great-grandson, they had many wives. It goes to the trouble of telling you this. In the book of Divrei Yom, he had so and so many wives and so and so many children. So, it's all shave it. You know, it wasn't just a small family. Uh, so they really killed everybody out. On the other hand, you could read it that way. And there's a very famous uh, Medish Rabba, I always recall, at the end of Bruce. Here we're coming close to Shavuos. Look at the very end of the Medish Rabba, which asked the question, on what Zechus was the family of David not totally liquidated? Because by the end of the story there, everyone was killed except the baby, Yoash, who was hidden by the high priest, by Yehoyad and his wife, saved from the massacre. Uh, which is mashma, but I believe that's the language of the Chazal. How come the egg of Dove wasn't totally crushed? Which means, why wasn't his family totally exterminated and one survived? Which is mashma that Shitaka went ahead and did a thorough job and killed everybody. All I'm saying is, you see from that whole story that was a bad idea in the opinion of the Torah, the Torah Shabbat Shalom, Torah Shalom, for a from guy like Yoshavat to team up with a non from guy like Ahab, even though they did it for good reasons, to defeat the king of Arab. In other words, to fight a war of the Jews against the guy. And so, this has always been part of the, uh, you know, Chesh bonus over there. Is it good to have a cooperative venture between the from and the non from? And uh, usually in Jewish history, everybody was kind of from, but now in the modern period, you have this situation, which you have secular. And can, is it profitable, is it good, is it wise to have from Jews, you know, cooperating uh, with non-from, the secular Jews, the atheists, for a joint project, especially in something involving Israel? You know, most people would say, just about everybody would say, for the purposes of Hatzalah, you should. Even the frumist of the frumist frumist in the middle of the Holocaust teamed up with uh, atheists, to try to save people in the Holocaust. I'm thinking of Rabbi Weissmandel, for example. You know, I was there together with Jewish communists and Zionists, all the rest of it. So, for Hatzalah purposes, yeah. But what about building up Israel? Uh, so it's complicated. And this is something I, I could really, without exaggeration, could talk about for an hour, but I'm not going to do that. I'm running late as it is. And so Rabbi Shmuel Oliver, he became one of the two leaders of the Chovetzian uh, movement which therefore means from the very beginning, the movement, which had branches everywhere and tried to raise money and send immigrants to move to uh, Palestine and, um, and uh, set up uh, Yishuvim and Moshavim and all that stuff. And uh, this whole movement had two heads. I mean that in the sense of two leaders. And I also said it means like a monster, had two heads. One from and, not one from and one not from. Dr. Pinsker was the head of the Nalfrum, and Rav Shmuel Muller was the head of the Frum. And this became the, the model for Zionism later on. Now I'm talking over here of the Chavvetsiyah movement of the 1880s, 1890s. This is before the formal Zionist movement founded by Theodor Herzl in 1897. I'm talking about between 1884 and 1897, let's say. And I repeat, people who were rabbis in big communities that had to do with big uh, people, uh, most famously... Ritzel Khan Inspector and the Nitziv of Elijah were card carrying members, dues paying members of the Chavetzim, right? Uh, and Rishmuel Mulder and people like that. And he was a real from guy. Uh, 
In the middle of all this, he moved to his final position, 1883, Bialystok. Now, to most people, Bialystok is just a name. You have to understand, this was a city of 50,000 Jews, an X number of Gaim. Jews were two-thirds of the population. To be a rov, and again, I repeat, an Avbezin and Deposek and all this kind of business of a Jewish community of 50,000, that's pretty big. You understand? Uh, let me put it this way. Kovna had 30,000 at its peak. In time, Yitzhak was at 25,000. Here's twice the size. You understand? So somebody could be like this. I mean, he wrote Charles and Chubas with Shmuel Oliver. I've seen them. Yeah, they're, they're, you can go to Hebrew books. You look up the Charles and Chubas, Shmuel Oliver, and all Dal Chalke Shulchan He was a gon. You know, and he has all the classic Shilas of yesteryear in the four parts of the Shulchan I remember a lot of Hummus things, a lot of Gitin uh, problems, Aguna questions. You know, the whole gamut. The whole gamut. Now, um, uh, he could have spent his life just being in, in, in the Rabbi Bialystok. But frankly, he, the people there elected him because that goes to tell you Bialystok must have been like a headquarters of uh, modern Orthodox. I mean, genuinely modern. I do mean that. And I also mean Orthodox. You know, not to um, one at the expense of the other. And Bialystok was that kind of town. They had a very... To, they had a very large element over there of what I would call Shomer Torah Mitzvah Maskilim. That's who you had in that town. And you know, he was a perfect fit. And he used his time to try to raise money and make the Chavetzin into a real movement. And he did to some degree. But it was real hard because the Russian government didn't approve. And there were constant battles between the from and the not from. And as time went on, it's in the nature of things that the non from were better at administration and politics, and they came to dominate the organization. And early on, starting in the 1880s already, you started to have the problem, is the new bunch of settlers, are they going to be from or not from? And, uh, the, the, and there were two heads of the movement, one in this place, one in that place. One was in Odessa, that was the headquarters of the non-from, and one was in Warsaw, the headquarters of the from. But the from weren't like the Aguda, you know, they were just like, like you know, uh, uh, they were from, like you say, moderate, you understand? And so the grav- the weight of the movement was in the direction that I'm from. Now I'm talking the 1880s, 1890s. This means that many places, the settlers that moved to Palestine were from Jews, uh, and sometimes not. The anti-from the you and I are familiar with, like Ben-Gurion type, that came in the 20th century, in the early years of the 20th century, uh, what's called Second Aliyah. Everything I'm talking about, they call First Aliyah. And the people over there weren't, you know, Haredim exactly. They were simple Jews who wanted to have, live in, and have this list of living in Israel and farm the land even under terrible conditions with the malaria the Arabs and the other things. If anybody wants to have a wonderful book um, that describes this all in English in, 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 in detail, my good friend Sammy Finkel, Sam Finkel, published a book a number of years ago with the Feldheim, and it's called, and I'm holding it in my hand as I speak, it's called Rebels in the Holy Land, about Masquerade Batya, an early battleground for the soul of Israel by Sam Finkel. And it's exactly about Rav Shmuel Moliver and this era. And um, that means that he, Rabbi Shmuel Oliver, 
and Rothschild got together. He said, "Let me let me get a group of a few farmers, a few Jews from 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 uh, Russia who want to be from and live in Eretz Israel and keep the Mrs. Atlius Baris and all the rest of it." And Rothschild paid for it, and they bought a piece of land. I think they called it Ekron originally, and then they called it Masker Batya because Batya Betty is the mother of uh, Rothschild, and um, uh, and they you know and they they were some Shabbos. And this was supposed to be the model. But then other settlements started in somewhere, not from like Gadara, and became a whole big element because people would come and they would say, oh, there are places where they're Mechal Shabbos. So the whole Zionism is trafe. And then the people like Shmuel Oliver said, well, look at this other place where they keep Shabbos. Let's make more of those. And it got to be a very messy political business. In addition to all this, you had Yerushalayim. Totally separate from everything I'm talking about, there was the Yishev Yashan. There were Jews who moved all throughout the 1800s into places like Jerusalem, which grew to a much larger community, you know, 10,000, 12,000, 15,000, something like that. Um, that Meisharm was exactly started, I think, in the 1870s, to give an example. Uh, and uh, they were real Haredim, and everything came to a head uh, in, uh, in 1888, was it? 1889, when they had the Shemitah year, and then you had the big question... What's going to happen with the farmers? Should they keep Shemitah? And this is a complicated question, obviously. And the <coughs> farmers went to Europe. One of the representatives, he went to Vilna, I believe it was. And he had it in a room of Shemuel Oliver and the Nitziv of Elushan and uh, Remordechai something or other. I forget, it's from Boisk or Eliasberg. These are three famous rabbis. The Nitziv, you already know, of course. And uh, basically, two of them said, "Let's try to find a heter mechira," and uh, the Nitzib was against it. Okay, he said, "No, they shouldn't do a heter mechira." So the Nitzib was a big Zionist in the sense that I'm describing over here, and precisely for this reason, he said Shabbos arts and Adriba, let's undertake in the from world and from Rothschild knows to raise money and see these people through the year because they won't be growing any food. And the other way was, no, that won't happen. People won't come. People will starve. And at the end of the day, Rishmuel Oliver wrote uh, a psaac that they could do the Hetem Mechira. Um, if I remember exactly, um, he got Rabbi Sigal Chonon to do a more restrictive one. I, I think, if I remember correctly, he said you could do Melachas Drabonim, but Melachas Dereis, you have to get an Arab to do something, something along those lines. Uh, it's very famous and controversial. Bitzigal Khan Inspector, who is the person, as we all know, that he, um, you know, gave the, a, a kind of head to Mechir. But it wasn't a blanket thing. It was um, subject to certain, uh, you know, Gedarm. If I remember correctly, Shmuel Mulver gave a, like a full blanket Hetter. Um, now, he was a big Tamachah. He could do it. But everybody said, I guess, well, sure he's doing it. So He's so um, drunk on Zionism, he'll be mocked or anything. Uh, in other words, the, uh, the, whatever his arguments are, and you know, Shemitah is a complicated business. Is it the rice? Is it the rabbanon? This kind of food, that kind of things. It's all sugya. It's 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 not simple, and uh, already that's messed everything. That already put in a bad taste, because the Frum said, "See, they're changing the Torah," and I repeat, then it see himself, who wasn't member of the Chavetzin, and said, "I strongly disapprove of this." You can look in the Shalom Shuvah and see. In fact, he said there, uh, "This is like a." Uh, What's it called? A uh, trivia pursuit. You know, who's the first person that ever used the term a Palestinian state? 
the answer is the Nitziv in his Shuvah on, on the Shemitah, because he said, you know, we don't want to turn this into a Medina Palestinian or something like that. Um, and the other thing was this way, you know, it, it became very controversial in the literature of the late 1800s, early 1900s, what was the real position of Ritzel Khanan? You know, the Zionists said, look, he was in the Chovetzian, and he gave the Hetem Mechira, and so on and so forth. And uh, the anti-Zionist said uh, he was twisted his arm, and he didn't feel that way. You know, you always have a thing with the Gedolim. The one you don't like, you say, well, they forced him to do it. It's not what he really holds. Now, there's huge back and forth in this, and the uh, secretary of Khanan, Yaakov Elishitz, was very famous being very anti-Zionist, because he was afraid of what I told you before, that the non-firm will take over the firm. And uh, it got to be extremely, extremely political. Um, that's an understatement. And uh, this was the politics of once upon a time. Now, as time went on, um, and by the way, the book I told you about from Sam Finkel is all about this Mascarid Batya, where the farmers there were from her. And they said, we do not wish to take advantage of this Hetem Mechira. And we wish to uh, you know, observe Shemitah, Kedasa Kedin. And the problem was Rothschild, because I'm not doing justice subject, but how long can I go on this thing? You know, I can't go so long. Whatever time as it is. Edmund de Rothschild was a weirdo. And um, part of his weirdness was he kept funding all these things in, in Palestine. You know, nothing would have happened without him. Uh, you know, he's done millions. On the other hand, he was a control freak and a micromanager, as millionaires are tend to do. You know, they say, if I'm giving the money, I want to call it the shots. And he sent his employees and officials to try to run uh, the Jewish settlements in Palestine. It was a disaster because they were all uh, French. They were Jewish. They're Frenchy assimilationist types. And uh, they're very anti from, even though formerly they weren't. And um, it was a bad shidduch. And they tried to be micromanaging dictators, control freaks over all the Jews there. This is W. Dua. If you're interested in this parish at all, there's a wonderful book by Simon Chama that he put out before he became a famous historian. It's called Two Rothschilds and the Land of Israel. I recommend it. And he goes through all of all the stuff that was going on at that time. And uh, Rothschild was always afraid of being ripped off because by him, Eastern European Jews are schnars. And even though at the beginning, he trusted Shmuel Mulliver, but there were times there was someone Mulvey made promises that the settlers will do this or he'll get money from somewhere else, and it never happened. He gave it his best shot, it didn't work, and at the end it became alienated from him, and he wrote him all these bitter letters. Rothschild wrote bitter letters. All the 1880s, 1890s, too, with Shmuel Mulver. You are a schnorrer, you lied to me, you're one of these phony rabbis just like everybody else, I thought you were different, blah, blah, blah. On the other hand, he never stopped writing a check. So Shmuel Mulver basically said this, I'll take all these insults, I'll just eat it. You know what I mean? This is, this is my sacrifice for, for Eretz Yisrael. Take all the insults. And it's very famous that um, he left in the Tzavor, Shemuel Oliver, that when he dies, they should, he kept all the letters of Rothschild cussing him out. And he said, when I die, you should put this in my coffin. And I was put my head on top of the letters and I'll be buried with these letters. The idea being like this. All the insults and stuff that I suffered from this rich guy, which I did Lishma, this will get me into heaven, hopefully. You know, very Jewish, old-fashioned, Ashkenazi way of doing things. 
And, um, but on the other hand, and I'm skipping all the details, Rothschild did not stop funding. And on the other hand, he had all these control freak issues. So in the case of this town, Ekron, that wouldn't work on Shemitah, Rothschild said, listen, Rashmo Malva wrote a hetter for it. If it's a Khanan wrote a hetter for it, if you guys aren't doing it, you're just being willful. And therefore, you don't have any religious sanction. And so I'm going to force you to work. And they say, you can't force us to work. Then he said, well, then I cut you off. I won't give you a penny. And they had people that died there because they didn't have enough funds and there was no medicines in the local uh, clinic. And uh, they suffered a lot. Many, many years ago, I was in, I, I, I think it was the first shul trip I led to Israel, I think. And we went on the recommendation of my friend, Sam Finkel, to uh, Muscared Batya, which is now a yuppie-type uh, settlement. But uh, they still keep up the old um, uh, buildings. And uh, they, we had a, a wonderful girl guide. I remember one of these Shavit Lumi girls, uh, very nice type, a religious girl from, you know, what they call, what they call the seminaries in the Kippastruga world, open, I think. And uh, she was wonderful. And she gave the whole long thing, the passionate story about how they suffered during that year for the Shemitah. That's led them to read the book. I recommend the book to everybody. Matter of fact, I think I wrote, yeah, I did somewhere on the back, I wrote a uh, recommendation for it. And uh, it was quite a dramatic story. And, you know, this was this was called the first Aliyah. You can go to Israel to Zichron Yaakov, there's a museum of the first Aliyah, they show you all this stuff. And this is all connected with Rosh Hashanah Now he... Um, as time went on, 1880s, 1890s, he found himself, on the one hand, things aren't developing in Israel exactly as he would want, and he led a trip there to, to check it out himself, uh, and, you know, he was re- aware of the tensions between the from and the not from, and he tried to bridge them. It didn't work so well. He was the opposite of stupid, so he saw things aren't working out exactly as he wants it. On the other hand, he wasn't going to throw out the baby with the bathwater. Uh, he was, like I said before, an old-fashioned communal rub in which you don't ostracize those who don't go along with you. You continually work ceaselessly to try to bring, bring them around. Now, from a modern perspective today, a uh, Haredi perspective, shall we say, it doesn't work. And so they don't do it. Nowadays, the Frum form their own things and the heck with everybody else. And that kind of worked in the last 150, 200 years. But in those days... The old-fashioned system was you constantly strive to get the non-from to move in your direction. That's who he was. And so the result was, as the 1880s, 1890s went on, the Chovetzian had trouble. They, they started raising money, but not a ton of money. Not a ton of money. And they couldn't have any political agenda because it was actually illegal in Tsarist Russia. Finally, they got a little bit of a, of a, of a permission. But you don't understand, the police in Russia sometimes were going after them like a dangerous revolutionary organization, which they weren't. And there are a lot of times I remember they, they, they couldn't use a printing press to put out ads. They had to handwrite them because you go in a printing press that's controlled by the, the police. You understand? It's, it's a trace. And uh, they used to send out the uh, literature and the pamphlets on the train because uh, you put it on the, 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 the postage on the train because then it doesn't say it's not stamped where it came from. Otherwise, the police said, who wrote this uh, pamphlet in the first place? What town is it from? Let's go make an investigation. So they had to suffer from czarist, uh, you know, uh, police junk, even though they weren't 
a danger to the regime at all. Not at all. And so uh, it wasn't Pasha. That's what I'm trying to say. She had a hard time. And in addition to all that, the, the organization threatened to break apart. And, you know, they insult, the firm insulted the Dr. Penske. So he resigned. They so got another guy in charge. And as we know today, looking back, the general trend of the Chavetzim was to introduce non firmism into Palestine. But uh, they didn't have a real political agenda. Because these were people who said, you don't want to mess with the Goyim. And psychologically, they couldn't bring themselves to say we want a Jewish state. Not because of Satmar reasons, but because they couldn't think in their own mind of being so chutzpahdik. It was in the middle of all this, in 1897, which is the year before Shmuel Mulver died, that in 1895, I should say, two, three years before he died, the Theodor Herzl, who had no connection with these people whatsoever, and was so assimilated in Vienna, he didn't even know they exist, he thought upon his own the idea, let's have a Zionist movement and have a state in Israel. You know, so in other words, he wasn't part of the previous uh, examples, and he, he thought he's being Mechadish, a, a brand new idea. He didn't know that they had colonies and stuff like that in Israel. And it was like weird. But on the other hand, he was a genius at PR, and he understood the Geisha world much better than they did. And he understood that, you know, you don't waste your time in a place like Russia. Instead, a international Zionist movement should be formed, and they should operate on countries like England, you know, England, America, France. You get more results out of them, which he was correct about. And uh, when he created the Zionist movement, which he did in 1897, that was Mavakal, the Chavetzim. It, it took him over. And a lot of the Chavetzim people resented it, like a Hanaam. That's a whole Parsha by itself. But you and I know that the Zionist movement that Herzl founded was much more dynamic and much more powerful. And Herzl himself was aware of the uh, from non-from tensions, and he respected Roshmul Molliver because he said this guy could be the leader bringing the from over to our side. And I think he generally respected him. We'll never know. Uh, and this movement, you know, took over and what's the right word? Like transcended all the Chovetzian stuff. It transcended the Rothschild stuff and brought things into a new Parsha. And let's face it, it took 50 years. 1897, they, they found the Zionist movement. Uh, uh, 20 years later, they got the Balfour Declaration, and uh, 30 years later, they got Israel. So I mean, it's just interesting. Now, obviously, the issues of from versus non from were never settled. And things went, in the 20th century, more in a non from direction, I should say. On the other hand, uh, this problem had its origins, as I said, in the, in the Chovetzian period. And by the time you get to the 1890s, in the last years of, of, of uh, Rashmul Mulliver, uh, when he, you know, he, got, he obviously got fed up with all the criticism, a whole bunch of very interesting stories uh, about all the I remember a guy said like this, why should you um, raise money to go to a small place like Palestine, which can't fit all the Jews? You should rather uh, try to lobby the Russian government to allow the Jews to move in Siberia, which is gigantic, and there they can build up the economy. And, you know, he was so you know, angry, that kind of stuff. He said, listen, for me, I say Lashana Baba Yushalayim. For you, I say Lashana Baba Siberia. Have it your way, you know, that kind of thing. And there are many stories along those lines. So he, you know, he was willing to suffer this. Now, I remind you, 
the saving grace was he didn't need anybody. He had his own stellar. He had a, he had a good parnosa. He had that money in the bank from the from the lottery, and uh, you know this at least gave him his dignity. He didn't have to kiss up to anybody. He could talk the way he wanted to talk. But on the other hand, the rich Jews always a problem. That goes back to the biblical times. You understand? Starting with Korah, the rich Jews are a problem. They don't really do usually right by Jewish people, and. You know, he suffered the slings and arrows of outrageous fortune as a result of all this. And so the Chavit Sinon, you know, got uh, uh, more and more uh, divisive on the from versus the non from uh, uh, issue. And in the end, what kind of happened was that he had to form like a, a from version of the Chavit Sinon, from branch, which he called the Mizrahi. That's where the term comes from. Now this is not a, there are two Mizrahis, A and B, so this is the first. And then when he died, it fell apart. And then four years later, after the Zionist movement started, they come the other Mizrahi movement, which most of us are familiar with, the religious Zionists. And, you know, they were, they didn't have a big leader until Rav Cook came along. So, uh, which a few years later. So this is the preceding one. Now, by the way, when he visited Palestine, uh, he brought some money with him and he bought Rehovot. <laughs> you know, that's what I said before. Uh, he bought the land over there. In those days, it was all about buying pieces of land. And uh, if you didn't have a piece of land, there would be nothing. Then you just have some from Jews in Yerushalayim. So you'd have an Arab state with with a Jewish community in Yerushalayim, maybe. You know, maybe the Arabs make a pogrom. Who knows? All I'm saying is, uh, he died in 1898. Uh, it, it, must, it, it probably was very, uh, what's the right word, uh, perplexed. You know, is there going to be a successful Zionist movement? Is there not? Will it be from in Israel? Will it not? Uh, to him, a non-from, anti-from state of Israel would be a nightmare. I mean, that, that's not what he had in mind at all. On the other hand, um, he would be the type I would imagine would say like this. Okay, if it's anti-from, let's start working on ways to try to make everything from. Now, it's a very idealistic position. On the other hand, it's not realistic. When I, and I say this sadly. If we look back from the perspective of the year 2020, it's, it's a certain patronizing business over here. We're not dealing with um, political liberalism or multiculturalism or toleration because that means... I want you to pay close attention as I close with this. If I meet... Um, how, should I, how should I put this? Suppose you see somebody who's... a. Uh, um, One's Ashkenaz and one's Sephardi. So, I'm Ashkenazic. But I have a friend who's Sephardi, I say like this, your davening is not my davening, Eidonah Mizrachim. But you, but it's 100% fine. I go with this davening, you go with that davening. I go with these minhagim, you go with that minhagim. Both are, are legitimate. I'm not trying to convert you to my way of davening, and you're not trying to convert me to yours. That's called real genuine liberalism and multiculturalism and toleration. But when it comes to from and not from, you can't say like this, I'm not trying to convert you, stay chilani, or vice versa. Each one is really, at the end of the day, trying to convert the other one. Or at least, that's the way it was 100 years ago. Today, it's more on one side. I don't think the chilani today are necessarily trying to convert the from. Maybe they are. But the other way definitely goes true. If I meet a Jew in Israel who's a chilani, even if I'm nice to him and all the rest of it, I mean this seriously, I'm not being funny. But in the back of the mind, you say, I guess, boy, maybe one day you will switch and become observant. You become a Shammah Shabbos.
Sometimes I don't really, it's a tactical, I don't really respect you. I'm just looking for a way to, to, to convert you. You understand? So this is the issue that we're dealing with. Shmuel Mulver and all, that's, that's who he was. That's who Rav Cook was, the others. They said, let's all cooperate with the non from. But at the end of the day, their hope was, somewhere along the line, our cooperation will result in these people seeing the light and then switching back to being from. Is this really true in the 20th century? You know, somebody today who has education, a modern secular education, doesn't believe in God, most of the time, I mean, there are exceptions, most of the time, you ain't going to convert them. You know, they have a completely different uh, world outlook, and they have questions of science and history and all the rest of it. And it's not simply, oh, if I'm clever enough, if I'm nice enough, all the rest of it, I'll switch them over. Yechidim, possibly, that works. But not as a broad mass. And so this is the problem you have in Israel today, obviously. You know, uh, that's why the religious, non-religious issue is, is today is one of the bedrock crises of the modern state of Israel. That's the truism that we all know. So with this, I, with this complicated message, I leave you, even though I've gone way over I've ever gone before, with this very interesting image of Rabbi Shmuel of Molliver. He, as I say, was in Bialystok uh, the last years of his life. And he died there, the Rav, that's one of the biggest communities. And he was buried there. Um, should I tell you this story? I just saw it. I don't know if it's true, but this, I read it once. That uh, who was, when he was the Rabbi in Bellstock, he buddied up with the Tchelis, the Dravzina Rebbe, and who happened to live there. I don't know why. And the story, this is how the story goes. And this is exactly when they introduced the movies. Thomas Edison invented the movies. In the late 1870s, it hit Russia by 1890 or something like that. Berich. Uh, 1880s, 1890s. And they were friends. And this is how the story goes. And they're talking. They say, here, there's this new Zach called the movies. Yeah, I wonder what it's like. I would like to see myself. I don't know what it's like. It's supposed to be a bunch of pictures. It makes it look like a moving picture. Should we go check it out? No, we can't go check it out. Why can't we go check it out? Too rabbonim, you can't stand in line for a movie. And the Razinas, according to the story, said... Let's switch clothes, then we won't be rabbis. You know, we'll go disguise. And Shmuel Mulliver said, I guess, listen, if, if, if you take off your garb, you're not a rabbi, so you can go in, in incognito. But when I take off my clothes, I'm still the rough. <laughs> even my switch, even my switch um, uniforms. It's like a classic story of yesteryear. He died in Bialystok and was buried there in a big fancy uh, 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 tomb. This tomb was destroyed in World War II, I understand. And uh, as many graves were in Eastern Europe, when one of the disgusting things you go in Jewish history towards, especially in Eastern Europe, is, you see, it's not enough that they killed the Jews, but they also uh, messed up and destroyed the cemeteries, desecrated them. I was in Belushin, for example, you see cemeteries all messed up. And that's because if you're not Jewish, you don't want any traces, or the fewer the possible, from the point of view of the Gentile inhabitants. Uh, when communism fell, so the Mizrahi movement in Israel, the Dati Lumi world, so they they made an effort and they transported his body to Israel, and they did a replica of the original Ohel, the big fancy schmancy Ohel from Yalstok, and it's in that town Moscow Batya, which I didn't know when I went there. This is I went there twenty years ago, whatever, and uh, so ever since nineteen ninety or thereabouts. <laughs> 1991, uh, the kever of the Rav Mulver is in Masker Batya in Israel, with all the fancy uh, psukim and things that they had in the Eastern European one, and 
the girl said that you know it's even the uh, letters by Rothschild where he cussed them out <laughs> are there. I don't know if that's true or not, but it goes to show you that um, you know there's somebody when you do it lishma you not think of your own covet. That kind of thing you don't find too often in Jewish Jewish history. Say so he, he's we're left with a picture of a person who was definitely a gadol, but a very unusual and controversial one. <laughs> and he had a certain mahalach, which didn't, uh, which which as you know, splits the from world today between the the uh, Mizrahi to put in in in, uh, in, in, in vulgar terms. Uh, and uh, it's just very interesting to contemplate it. Anyway, I've gone so long over here, it's ridiculous. Uh, and if you're interested in more, read that book by Sammy Fingal. Take care. For sponsorship opportunities or to support this podcast, please visit our donate page at www.support.rabbidavidkatz.com. Hi, it's Thursday afternoon, I guess. Almost 6.30 now. I'm trying to squeeze something in between. had a bunch of classes today, and then a Vada Rabbana meeting, and then uh, now I have a, a Shul Zoom soon, and then we have our Zaini Chabrusa later on. By the way, I want to, um, my own, uh, we're going to dedicate this talk today to the Mazel Tov, to the wedding uh, Mayor Newberger's daughter, they just got married this week. Yehudas to Mordechai Edelstein. They're one of these log bomber weddings. And so, uh, in the words of Chazdei Kreska's time stands still, you know. Uh, but Molotov to Mayor and his family. And with that, I will proceed. Although, still looking for some help with the um, lectures, the, the video lectures, the lecture I'm hoping to do in June. Uh, but I'll leave that alone for now. This week, of course, is... Um, a double parsha of Harmachu Kosai, which means the Tochacha. That's what I always zoom, zoom in on. And there's just a couple ideas running through my mind. I think I'd rather do it now than wait till later. I have to have a Harusa later on this evening. It'll interfere with that. When we get to the Tochacha, there's several basic uh, uh, things that strike you, or at least strike me. First of all, you know, there are two Tochachas, one in Vayikra and one in Dvarim. And there's a certain style, what I call, you know, the Parshanun style. In which you have know, the classic sort of dialectical approach, in which you see if you have two tochos and one is by three, and one is by shane, he has a lot of stuff. Like if you're interested in that approach, which I'm not, you look at Nachshoni in this place. This is, I recall by memory, he will line up all those who try to figure that stuff out. Uh, it's interesting. It's a certain mahalo. I'm just not into it myself. And one of the reasons I'm not interested, it doesn't strike me as correct is, what do you do with Hitler? There's no question to me. I'm only sharing what makes sense to me. No question Hitler is some kind of manifestation of Tochacha. And the reason I say is because all the things described there happened. My father went through this stuff, you know. My parents went through the war. My father was in the concentration camp and all that business. And he told me many times, you know, you know, you're reading the talk about this and about that. And he's, I saw this and I saw that. And I experienced this and I experienced that. From the terror, he didn't experience cannibalism, but he lost kids, you know. And the starvation. And 
all the, the all the things that are mentioned in the Tocha, you really find happen. So what are you going to say? One's talking about his and one's talking about Shani, and then Hitler is just, oops, that's just like a coincidence? That's ridiculous. But rather, it leads one to the unfortunate speculation that the Tocha Club, in whatever form it assumes, whether the uh, Vayikra type or the Dvarim type, refers to a cyclical uh, pro- uh, uh, phenomenon that occurs and reoccurs in Jewish history from time to time, as rarely as we hope. And it is, whether we like it or not, one of the signs that, you know, the Torah is kind of true because these things do happen. No one likes to hear that, and especially now, during the Corona era. So, you know, you have two approaches. One says God, uh, you know, did this, and here's the reason why. And the other one says there is no God, it just happened by happenstance. You know, you look out there. I looked in the forward the other day online. I said, you know, the God has nothing to do with this. And so, you know, we live in crazy times. But from the towards, from the firm perspective, every misfortune comes from God, just like every fortune. And so, if you have something as vivid and horrible as you described in the Tocha, and it happens and rehappens in Jewish history more than once or twice, more than once or twice, so then it's part of the Messias. The same way that Shabbos and Kashrus and uh, Tzitzis is all part of the Messias. It's just existential. It's always there. So the Tochelah, whether we like it or not, is always hanging in the background. And you don't need me to tell you there are plenty of anti-Semites right now who would love to just open the book of Leviticus and just implement this line by line. We have a lot of vicious enemies out there. Everybody knows that. That's why it drives us crazy when you see these people make Hashem's and cause anti-Semitism in Ava because of the corona and other stuff, like, well, you know, what, 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 what do you give them a cherubi Adam Larganu for? And so, you end up with the idea that the Tocha is always in Nogea because, um, as I said before, we see it occurring, recurring. Now, when I was growing up, it was a different attitude. When I was growing up, it was post-World War II and the decades after World War II and people really believed that what happened is over and can't happen again, and anti-Semitism is more or less dead, and Hitler can never revive, and, you know, we're moving to a, a, a better world, and now you have the United Nations, a world of peace and freedom and, and, and democracy, etc., etc., etc. Well, you and I have lived long enough to be wiser. And Plato said only the dead have seen the end of war, and uh, similarly, only the dead have seen the end of anti-Semitism. It's, it's there. I don't say make a tocha every day because we couldn't survive that, but it comes and happens. Now, it's not a happy thought, but that's not my intention today. Having said that, therefore, my attention is always drawn to the tocha. Again, I remember after the war, the Kleisenberger Rebbe says it's not happening again. You could say the tocha out loud and slow. I used to hear these kinds of things. And obviously, somebody went through the camps, you know, it's indescribable, so anything after that it can never happen again. But that's more of a, to my mind, that's more of an emotional reaction to the horrors of the Holocaust. Tocha is out there. Uh, out there. Now, having said that, the language is always funny. If you look at it closely. I don't mean the language of the Tocha, because then that's pretty direct. But the build-up at the beginning of Bechul Kosai. For example, as, you know, as we all know, it's a Bechul Kosai Telecho. What do you mean? How do you holech and chok? How do you walk the... I'm always drawn to the Hebrew it, it, weirdism. You don't walk in law, right? You don't walk in law. And Rashi, of course, it's a Chazal, not Rashi. He said, you know, Amelon Batoro. 
And uh, and Rashi even goes on to say, Lishmar Lakayim. And that's very interesting. Because to walk in the law means, yeah, to, to, no, it's to walk correctly in the law, or to use better English, to properly administer the laws of the Torah uh, requires um, amelus. Uh, one of the great uh, problems is a, what's the right word, an un an in, in, incompletely educated judge. Somebody knows dialogue a little bit. There's going to be Paskin wrong. Many Rabbanim fall into this category, let's be honest. And, because who can be holding in everything and be my in every sugi, you know, that you have beholding? If you're lucky, you happen to be learning now and somebody come and ask you a question, so you can sound off like you know everything. If you're lucky, somebody can ask you a question, you just happen to learn about Messiah, so you're able to answer the spot. Not that many people can answer anything at any time. So, Amelim Batora means that you undertake to understand the meaning of the Torah and therefore be able to, uh, to walk with the law, to apply the law correctly. And that's basically an argument in favor of learning with the idea of a suki shmaitz elibid to find out what the actual halacha is, which is one of two ways the Torah has always been studied. There has been two streams. You'll never change this because it, it responds to different personalities. There are people out there who naturally go for alumnus, and frankly, the halacha bores them. And some people the other way around. Many people the other way around. And it's funny that the Lithuanian yeshivas that we have today are built around the idea of number one. It's an acre when you're in yeshivas to learn the lambdas. With the expectation that uh, when you leave, and t- if you want to be a learned balabasa, or especially if you want to go into the rabbinate, somewhere along the line, kola, later on, you learn up the halachas by yourself. But meanwhile, you want to know the Reb Chaim's. And, and it's always been a debate. Never go away. You know, what's the right way to teach? What's the right way to learn? With the boys in high school, with the boys in, in base managed to better with a halacha type of curriculum, or not. When I say halacha lamaisa, I mean, in other words, to understand the sugi well, to be amelam b'torah, say yichuko say lechu. Or is that wrong? Or is the ikr, you know, the 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 iun, as they say, the lumdus. And as it'll always be, you know, this debate. You know, there are gedolim, obviously, who excel in A and B. There are. But that's what makes them gedolim. Not everybody's like that. Most people... If they excel, excel in one or the other. And that's pretty impressive, right? You show me somebody who excels in the lambdas, even if you don't know the halacha very well, wow, it's still pretty impressive. Alternatively, you show me somebody who's a bucky balacha. I mean, you know, he knows the sug is clear. And, you know, he's not into the lambdas. That's still very impressive. Uh, in Kabbalah when you get a double, somebody combines both. So, is understood already that you're going to walk into laws. Therefore, you be amelim in the Torah. What's the words of Rashi? Amelim in the Torah. Almanas lishmer lakayim. That's not alachal amaisa. No alachal amaisa. Don't say, you know, to 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 be uh, speculate. Now, um, in in return for that, so what do you get? What do you get? So first of all, there's this remarkable passage that I always call attention every year whenever I look at the parsha, where it says v'salachti v'sochachet. I'll walk among you. What, what, what does that mean? Rashi immediately switches, uncharacteristically, in my opinion, uh, to a uh, kind of a mystical, Olam Habadik interpretation. Right? 
compare Rashi and the Ben Ezra, for example. And you'll see that Rashi says, Atayel in Mechem Beganeden, Kechem Mechem. Right? I'll walk with you in Ganeden. No, God's all company in Ganeden. That's Ruchnius. So, Imechukosei Telechu, Hisalachti Besochem. Then you'll be rewarded in Ganeden, and you'll be near me, near the Shechina. We'll walk together, as it were, and in Olam Haba, or whatever, and uh, that's what it'll be. The most of the other mafarshim, at least that I know about, don't quite understand it that way. Uh, but rather, they look at the word visalachti. I walk among you, and uh, you understand it more like a physical thing that God will be among you when you walk. So I'm walking the shul. If I have the right intentions, Shin is walking with me. So it's quote unquote visalachti b'sochachem. What does what does the Ibn Ezra say here? When you go into battle and you take the Migdash, I guess the the the, the Aaron or something like with you, then I will go with you and give you victory. This of course means Otherwise it won't work. The classic example in the Tanakh is the Battle of Ofek at the beginning of Shmuel Aleph, where the Jews are wicked. But they go into battle against the Philistines. And on the first day, they start losing. The second day, they bring the Aron. The police immediately say, uh-oh, now we're stuck. This is the great God and all the rest of it. And in spite of that, the Philistines go on to win a great victory. Capture the Aron, by the way, which is the ultimate disgrace. Kill Chofni and Pichas the Kohanim and all the other soldiers here who don't run away. And it's a disaster. Ailey dies, as you know. It's a disaster. So what happened? The answer is they read that, but they didn't do How do I know I'm right? If you read on in the book of Shmuel, you'll see that after these defeats, and everybody's dead, the only one left is the prophet Samuel, and he says, let's try davening, but first, you know, give her the idols. And they say, okay. Ah, so you see they had idols. So then you can't bring a Shechina, you can't bring a Aron, I mean, into a battle. This First, you got to do a All right, fine. Let that be. But at least this approach sounds more to the Pshat, right? I will go with you. And many other Mephoshim kind of go with that Mahalach. Uh, I'm looking at this great page here that Jonathan Marvin sent me. Al Hatura, it's called. At the Ksava Kabbalah, in your Mesalech, Holich, Anav, Anav, Lo, Mokam, Echabilvat. Now, as I wander with you, not going to any particular place, I'll accompany you. That right, you know, that makes sense, right? That makes sense. Uh, but nevertheless, having said that, I do understand that the Torah can be read in uh, in two different levels, at least. And one is talking about the Gash, and one is talking about the Ruchni. There's no question about it. And I mean that. So, for example, it goes on to say, and I mentioned this in my group yesterday, that um, when they, if you don't listen, it comes to Tochacha. And what does it say? I'll smash the pride of your strength. That's not good. You know, uh, you can have a powerful army or air force, and uh, God will say, I'll screw it up, I'll mess it up. I'll render the, the Shemayim like iron and the earth like bronze. 
this posh shop means if such a thing is possible when you do poetry because um, he doesn't literally mean to turn the sky into by itself. So what it means is, right, that um, it will be no fertile. You know, the, the, there will be no rain from upstairs and no water from downstairs. It's It will be hard like, like, like uh, metal. I get that, right? I, t- I totally get that. However, um, how should I put it? The, the um, Shemayim and Aretz don't really mean sky and, and ground. As you know, not really. Eretz means the physical, and Shemayim means the metaphysical. Really. <laughs> so it's very interesting. When Natsatsi Shmechem Kabarzel, I'll make the metaphysical world, no, it's the heavenly, the, the spiritual world, the other dimension, inaccessible to you. It'll be like Barzel. Not that it won't drop rain, but it won't drop any ruchness. You know, it won't drop any connection with the divine. And the earth will also be like that. That's already a spiritual kind of punishment. You understand? Very interesting to think of it that way, in my mind. So, you know, if you, if you, also, if you don't listen to the Torah, you don't follow the laws, then you'll find yourself, uh, what shall I say, completely cut off from spirituality. You think today, for example, of many people that one meets, not from, and they have no spiritual interest whatsoever. Now, I'm not referring to people who are not observant, they could even be atheists, but are big idealists. They're ass types. Big liberals, I'm serious, not being funny. You know, liberals who are um, devoted to some cause or another. So, they are, they have a spirituality of a certain type. It's not mine, it's not the Torah's, but at least they have something higher than themselves. But there's so many people you find when they're not from, it's, it's so materialistic that the, the Shemayim part of their existence is, 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 is iron, it's cut off. You see, all they're thinking about is the consumerism and materialism. And to them, if you say, I'm living the life of heaven, means that you don't have to have a big house and a big car. That's, that's where it goes. That's where they put all their, their kochas into. And that's pretty sad uh, for a Jew. Because uh, they have a big heritage, they don't give a darn. And, uh, and it won't change. When the, uh, you used to see it, you've seen it, I mean, I know a lot of people like that. And you saw it in a very heavy number of the Russian Jews came over here 20, 30 years ago, coming from a materialist Soviet Union. Not all, of course, a lot, a lot of like it, but I saw a lot, met a lot. It's all materialism, right? And it's sad because materialism can only go so far. Now, maybe their children would be different, you know. The problem is, this is where Avodah comes from among the Jews, where the parents are just worshipping the golden calf, and the children look for another uh, ideal, as of the nature, generations rebel against each other, and uh, they won't look into Judaism. Some will, but most will not. They'll look for other gods, for other causes. This is a problem we have with those Jews today, who are in favor of all kind of stupid things and anti-Israel things or whatever. It's, uh, it's how it goes. These are broad thoughts. All this leads to a general question, and that is an old one. And uh, that is, why is the Chukosai, why is everything so physical? Rashi chose, very interestingly, and probably for this reason, to interpret Vizalachti B'Sochachem as something spiritual. 
you look at the rest of the promises, it says, I'll give you rain, I'll give you crops, I'll give you abundance of this, that, and the other. It's like a, it's like a speech at a farmer's convention. I'll give you good hay, I'll give you good crops, I'll give you, you know, your animals won't get sick. Uh, I'm telling you, it's like the Kansas heaven. You know what I'm saying? This is the Torah. Why don't they speak in broad and lofty terms? And why don't they mention uh, spiritual things? If you do a mitzvah, you get a ruchnius. The kind of thing you would expect in a mashkiach speech in the yeshiva today. You know, schar mitzvah, mitzvah. That the mitzvah itself is the mitzvah. And all that sort of thing. And the highest madregas devekas. All the kind of language that the Jewish tradition has evolved in terms of advanced and lofty spirituality, you don't actually find in the Chumash. What you find is, like I say, farmer's convention. You do this and this, this, you get good land, good crops, good animals, good produce. Perhaps I'll give you gold and silver. So now, you know, you know your mom is talking the language of a bunch of Chams. That's how the Chumash is written. You know, you want to get rich? Keep the Shabbos. Believe me, if people thought, how should I put it? That, uh, you know, you keep Shabbos, you get rich. A lot more Jews would keep Shabbos. But what kind of a Shabbos? They'd be taking off kapars. They have no ruchnis whatsoever. They'd be looking over their shoulder all the time saying, look, I kept three Saturdays in a row. I want to get a raise. I want to win the lottery. So it's funny. Now, different commentators for a long time in the old days, Middle Ages, were preoccupied with this issue of the Yehudeya Torah, as they call it, the promises in the Torah, which are always very physical. And why don't you find in the Yehudeya Torah any reference to lofty spirituality? You don't find any reference to Olam Habo, to Ganadin, Scharbonish, in that sense. It's always this worldly. Take, for example, the second paragraph of Shema that we say every day. I'm giving grass for your animals. I mean, come on, right? And if you don't, then you won't get any material goodness. No rain. It's like I say, it's like a farmer's thing. So, why is it written like that? Uh, the Abarbanel, who I mentioned in the past, is always good to me when he gets to these kind of issues because he becomes encyclopedic. And what he does is, he says, this issue of the material promises versus the spiritual promises that one finds in the pre- uh, preface to the Tochacha, or that sort of thing, you know, what has been written on this subject? And he identifies seven approaches. So if you're interested in this this week, take a look at the Barbara beginning of the Chukasai, but he's long. I gotta warn you, he's long. And he'll tell you all the classic approaches of the Roshonim. If you're too lazy to do that, then I'll tell you an abbreviated form. And the abbreviated form is Kliyakar. And the Kliyakar undertakes in his commentary on Chukasai to be a bridged version of the Barbanel. Get it? A bridged version. And I'm going to run through it very quickly for you, and I won't do it justice, but I'm just, so hopefully I'm whetting your appetite. And this will give you something to do on Shabbos. Right? And he says over here, in the Pasuk of 
Hisalachti Bisokheb. After quoting Rashi, he says over here that Rashi is giving this spiritualistic interpretation because Rashi is obviously bothered by what bothered all these other philosophers, which is how come there's nothing spiritual mentioned in Bechukosai. It's always material. But, according to Rashi, if you interpret which is not, let's be honest, of all the promises, that's one that cannot be literal. God is not physical, so it can't be I can't walk with you. Get it? Noach. Noach walked with the Lord. So since blatantly the translation of the verse cannot be literal, and it can mean God will walk with you, so it must be spiritual or so Rashi saying, you see, there's a clear reference, if you understand how to decode the Bible, it's a clear reference to a spiritual reward. And in light of that, you can interpret it, the subsequent physical rewards and punishments that are outlined in the Parsha of Chukosai. And uh, Cleoka says those words. And he's died to the Salik Mial Torosina Kadosha, Colton Amar. The purpose that Rashi gives this interpretation, instead of, for example, the plainer and more of an Ezra type of uh, interpretations is to uh, push off those who say, who have tinas in the Torah, who say, Yesh me lokom lelom, I have room to complain. She miachas lonisko, but Torah ikar, schar lenishama, vadin koch mitzze lohanchilosim, chaynashalom haba. If the Torah makes no reference to a spiritual uh, reward, obviously the 613 mitzvahs can't do that. But rather, the 613 mitzvahs are more by the way of a social contract. They will keep, and Maimonides says this in the Guide for Perplex also, that if you keep the Torah, among other things, you get a well-run society. Let's face it. You dress a certain way, you eat a certain way, you have a certain discipline, that promotes a good society. But that has nothing to do with the Ruchni side of it. So, Right? And it must be that everything involved in the Torah is Olam Hazah oriented. Tachlis Asiyosam, the reason you do the mitzvahs, it would seem, he says, Enukim Lekabal Schar Olam Hazah, Ha'ochus Bechabli Booz, to get material rewards in this disgusting world, because material rewards in themselves are junk. And he goes on to say, Kvarnas Oral Savik Zesh Shleimim Gamrabi, I, the Kliyakar, I'm not the first guy to approach this problem. Many have. And if you look through them, you end up with seven opinions. And the Barbara lays out the seven opinions, but at great length. But I want to give it to you short and sweet and dumb. So, it's very interesting. Uh, that doesn't mean each one of you here is going to be persuasive. But each one is what you call a classic Torah position. Hadeo Achas is the Rambam. This is possibly familiar to you. I don't know who you are listening to this. But if you're familiar with the essays of the Rambam, so in a number of places, Hilchus Chu, for example, and other places like that, the Rambam's basic approach, which is a super rational, logical one, is that the... But it's very, very smart. I mean, it makes a lot of sense. And that is... The rewards of material prosperity are not the end in themselves, but a means to an end. If God says, if you do this and that and the other, I'll give you peace and prosperity, the meaning, according to the Rambam, is as follows. Once you have peace and prosperity, you can sit and learn. 
<laughs> Get it? And ultimately, go beyond just learning Gemara to, you know, in the Maimadian fashion, thinking intelligently about Ruchnias. Right? Which is to him the Vegas. So, it's not That's just a fancy way of saying, according to the Rambam, that if you keep the mitzvahs, I will put you in the right place at the right time in history. Because if you're in the worst, I get it, you can't sit and learn. If you're in Auschwitz, you can't sit and learn. Frankly, if you're in Soviet Russia, most of the time you couldn't sit and learn. You understand? If you're born, God forbid, with a terrible illness or a handicap or something, you can't sit and learn. You, you get what I'm saying? Take so much for granted based on the fact of luck. You hope that God arranges that you, the person I'm talking to now, is born in the right time, in the right family. You're not uh, a child of two parent abusers who, who, you know, who mess you up psychologically and all this. You can't sit and learn like that either, right? You can't do it. Or you're not bad friends who mess you over and stuff like this. I myself heard that many years ago uh, when all this sexual abuse stuff was popping up in the public view, was that 10, 15 years ago, something like that? More. It started coming out of the woodwork. And uh, the rabbis in Baltimore had like a, a one-day session. It was very good, actually. He brought in speakers and all this. Speak about the idea. And the uh, opening address was from the Rashid of Nerez, Rabbi Aaron Feldman. And he said, I'll tell you a story, and then I'm leaving. And then he was in uh, B'nai Brock, wherever, or something like this. And there was a kid who was good in learning. All of a sudden was bad in learning. Uh, a kid, you know. If I remember correctly, 10, 11, 12 years old, something along those lines. It was going good and all of a sudden not. And the parents couldn't get him to learn and they're going crazy. Uh, and by the time it's all over, it turned, and they hired a special tutor for him. And by the time it's all over, the rabbi or the tutor, somebody molested him on top of a gemara. Now, you don't have to be Sigmund Freud to put that together. So, Venosati Bittar's Chimbito means, I'll arrange, God says, if you keep the midst all the rest of it, you won't have such a kabusa. You won't have such a bar mitzvah teacher. You won't have such a rebbe. You won't have such friends. And you live a normal life, and then you'll have good health, and you'll have good social environment, and then you can, quote-unquote, if you're so inclined, you can devote your life in being in kolel or some variation of that, or, you know, become a doctor, and maybe, you know, you'll be able to have a big ruchnius. So the material rewards them are the necessary uh, grounding for a life of spiritual success. Um, and the Rama being a doctor and having lived under Islamic terrorism back in Spain, I mean, you know, he's speaking from first hand over here. So that's one way of approaching it. That's why the Torah always speaks about the material stuff, because the material stuff is extremely important. I don't mean wealth and decadence, but I mean basic sustenance. Like most of us, I think, have in America or Israel today, usually, I mean, everybody's different, but if you have the basic amount that you're able to, uh, you know, uh, again, to use modern terminology, you're able to put aside an hour or two, you know, for, for the dafyomi, for the this, for that, and the other, to to, to uh, cultivate your uh, Torah, literature side, your spiritual side. That requires a middle-class uh, parnoso. You see? Now, Hadea Shnia is Ibn Ezra, he says, which is in Hazinu, and he says, HaTorah nitna lo lakol, the Torah can be understood as applying to a, a seaboard and not to a yachid. Okay? 
And that's why uh, the spirituality is an individualistic property. Uh, it's a very interesting approach. The Tzibor, you have to give him material promises. The Yachet is a bit different story. And um, uh, Ibn Ezra, obviously, like the Rambam, is, is an aristocrat by his background. All the commentaries in the Torah probably are written by aristocrats, if you think about it. I don't mean that they're rich, but they have that aristocratic mentality. They're members of an elite. And he says, Since the Torah is written for the public, so the public understands cash, money, rewards, health, uh, property, prosperity. They can't understand, you know, ruchnias and this sort of thing. And therefore the Torah doesn't speak in those terms. That's the approach of Benezer. Hadeh is the of um, where he talks about, and I didn't like it. They say, it's from the fact that his chorus must mean you're cut off from some good uh, spiritual uh, thing. So if the Torah tells us a thing called chorus, it leaves you the imagination that there must be some wonderful spiritual reality behind it that the person who doesn't get chorus, who keeps the missus, attains. I don't know, it doesn't work for me. Um, is um, the approach of the Kuzari and uh, the Drushes around which is actually kind of interesting. And what he says is, over there, this is, uh, remember, the Kuzari was written in the context of a debate between religions, correct? You know, and um, the Kuzari, I mean, it's a very Jewish kind of argument. And it goes like this. What does the Torah promise you? Uh, heaven? Uh, wine, women, and song in, in Allah, you know, in, in, in some uh, spiritual realm? Any religion can promise that, and they do. I remember many years ago, reading, many, many, many years ago, reading something from, I think, Dorothy Schiff, visited Palestine. She owned the New York Times, I think, or the New York Post. She was the daughter of Jacob Schiff, I think, or a daughter-in-law. And, uh, you know, the zillionaire. And uh, she visited Palestine in the 1920s. I think her husband was Jewish, but maybe not. And she ran into a Christian missionary in Palestine, British Palestine, in the 1920s. And his job is to go and try to convert the Muslims. And she says, how's the malacha going? And he says, it's a bummer. Why? He says, I try to promise him, you know, I, I, I try to make a Muslim convert to Christianity. Uh, they say like this, what are you offering? I say, spiritual bliss with Yashka. He said, the heck with that. My guy promised me, you know, it, like in the Quran, wine, women, and song, and rivers of wine. And things like that. So I get a better deal, more bang for the buck if I join for the Islam. And that's, you know, the approach that says you can promise anything, uh, but the higher you promise, the more followers you get. After all, no one's ever going to know because it all happens after you die. And so the whole thing could be a lie. And that's what religions do. They do pie in the sky. So the Kuzari, uh, arguing with the king, says, see, the Torah doesn't want to uh, do that. The Torah is like this. I'll promise you real things. You'll be able to test it. You'll be able to test it. If the Jewish people do the right thing, you will see that things will work out for them. God, prosperity and peace and expansion and all the rest of it. And that's something you can test. So the Torah is a true book. So it gives you empirically verifiable promises. That's the approach of the Kuzri and the Ron. It's always kind of cute. The only problem is, does it ever work? So the answer is yes and no. There are times, going by what it says in the Torah, 
There are times when you had good kings and there was peace and prosperity. On the other hand, there are times when you had good kings and there wasn't. Alternatively, there are times when there were bad kings, we're told in the Tanakh, and it was good. Uh, two examples jump to my mind. Chizkiyahu uh, was supposed to be real good. And it says, something like that. After Chizkiyahu did all the things to fix up the kingdom of Yehuda after his father had messed things up, after he did all these from things, came the invasion by Ashur, the Assyrian army under Sancherev, in which they wiped out like 90-some percent of the country in horrible ways. And only at the gates of Jerusalem was there a miracle at the last moment, which is a great story, but it ignores the fact that the rest of the king of Yehuda had been absolutely devastated. I mean, people were killed by the Syrians. And if you want to see graphic pictures of this, go to the museum or go on the Google and you see the siege of Lachish, which is you know, uh, depicted by the Assyrians in their uh, art, uh, and you see like a devastating attack on a Jewish city, and the impaling of the Jews and the horrors, the visiting population, and so why did a nice guy like Chizkiel get a terrible war like that? Just read the other way around. Should have been a bad king, and that's why the Assyrians obeyed. And the Gemara tries to figure that out. In the, the last paragraph of Sanhedrin, you know, basically they said it could have been Gogamogo, whatever. Whatever Mahalach. But it's considered to be, so to speak, a blip in the pattern. Usually, when it's a good king, it's a good time. When the Jewish people keep the mitzvahs, it's supposed to be a good time. That's the basic argument of the Kuzuri. And uh, it's interesting that in the book of Malachim, you had the king of Yehuda, king of Israel, the northern kingdom. The northern kingdom, they say, the best of the kings of the north, even though each and every one of them worshipped Deglazov was Yeruvim II, for a number of reasons. And he conquered land from the Goyim, and, you know, he was a powerful king, and the Jews had it good in his time. But he was wicked. He worshipped the golden calf. And uh, the Pesach in, in Malachim says, you know, why did this happen? And the answer, meaning it doesn't fit the right pattern. is one way, is another way. And it endeavors to give a reason. God couldn't stand the enemy rejoicing and crushing the Jews down to nothing. In other words, God could not take the arrogance of Hitler. It's got nothing to do with the Jews being good or bad, but the arrogance of the Goyim drove him, and, and therefore he said, to punish you, I'll make the Jews successful. Which goes to show you can't game the system, you know? But nevertheless, having said that, that seems to be the approach of the uh, of the Kuzari and the Jerusha Saran. And then you have another two out there. You can look at ones in the Mornavuchim, or rather, yeah, and from Sadigum, actually, who uh, who says that, uh, you know, it used to be that people believed the idols would bring material prosperity, but now you'll see, you'll be able to test for yourself that those who worship the idols don't, and those who don't worship the idols do. And, yeah, I don't know, that's from Sadigum, really, originally. And he's got two more. You can look at it yourself, right? So, um, all I'm trying to say is, it doesn't work so well for a modern person, these kind of approaches. They're very neat and, uh, as they say, kind of dialectical. You, know, you have a question, you have an answer. It wraps things up. But it's not, to me, anyway, I can tell, all I can tell you is what's with me. Why should you uh, fool around? It's not Ms. Yashiv, L.A. There's, uh, you know, uh, the question is better than the answers, in my opinion. I can only tell you my opinion. And I say this because now Shop is coming. We're all going to the Tochacha. Um, try to figure it out on your own. Maybe you come with a better answer than I do. I'm serious. I'm not being funny. 
And uh, it's just remarkable, though, that uh, these striking historical uh, events means that Jewish people are condemned never to have a normal history. We're either going to have a, something where we're real high or real low. That's the meaning of the Tochab. When times are good, the Jews are, 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 very go- are, are very well off. When times are bad, the Jews are not. They're not like people of Switzerland, you know, or something like that. The history is boring. We Jews do not have a boring history, unfortunately. Uh, we'd rather have a boring history if you ask us. That's not our destiny. Looking back after 3,000 years, you can see certain facts sort of jump out at you as being characteristic of Jewish destiny. And two of them come to mind. And I think I'll close it down with that. One is the question of numbers, numerical. We Jews are destined throughout thousands of years of history, 3,500 years now at least, to be small in number. That's just very interesting to me, you know? Small in number. There are only a few million Jews in the world today, as we all know. And it's always been like that, relative to the world population. If we would be a bigger people, we'd probably have a different destiny and different history, but we're not. And so, for some reason, the good Lord decided long ago this is going to be a small people, but very potent. You understand? By us, it'll be of in quality and not in quantity. I think it's the Rambam who says that when Avram tell, uh, is told, your children will be like the Kokhi like the stars in the heaven, doesn't mean uh, numerous, but it means they'll shine, the stars shine in the dark. So the Jews will excel in, in, in quality. To use modern terminology for the 21st century, we win all the Nobel Prizes. You know what I'm saying? If you want to be from, you have the Torah scholarship. Uh, but the Jews aren't normal, just regulating. You find the Jewish community, you don't find people just going around doing their work like everybody else and living in here. And unfortunately, for better or worse, you see a manifestation of this in the corona thing going on now. Because the Jews ain't normal, Right? You look at the guy, they just observe the, 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 you know, the, the rules, and then they put up with it. And the Jews, you know, they're always pushing against the scenes. Here, Lakewood, Israel, can't do with the regular, because we're not like everybody else. We have this kind of energy or whatever that can express itself in a sublime way, or in a stupid way, or in a stupid way, as we see from all these videos on, online, the unfortunate videos. So one of them is, are small numbers, right? Now, that's the interesting thing. Uh, and the other one is our dram- dramatic destiny. Jews always living in drama. It's never normal, it's never quiet. Times are good or times are bad. You see? The Jews are going up, 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 or they're going down, down, down. I mean it. And so we always watch with bated breath what's happening with Israel every day. And, you know, it's, and Israel's always hanging by a thread. And it's Chayuch, like it says, You never know what it's going to be. And uh, it's not like another regular country. The Israelis themselves have a whole fantasy. Why can't we just be in a desert island? I mean, on a, on a separate island out in the Pacific Ocean. You know, like New Zealand or something like that. That would be the Jewish country. And everybody just leave us the heck alone. I agree with that. Uh, that's a nice dream. But it's not <laughs> what God set up. He said he decided to stick us right in the eye of the Middle East. Great move, you know, if you're looking for peace and quiet, that's not where you're going to get it. That means Claudius Rope is not destined to live a life of peace and quiet. It's just interesting. We'll either do and then, you know, you know, one of you will chase a thousand of them, or one of them will chase a thousand of you. 
That's a very interesting prediction. It means you always be up, 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 in a, in a miraculous, in a crazy way, or you'd be down, 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 also in a crazy way. And we have seen this in our destiny. So these are just a few thoughts that run through the mind that kind of present themselves as obvious when you look at a partial like B'chukosai. And with that, I bid you a good Shabbos. And I hope somebody will, uh, will step forward to help out on these uh, uh, sponsorships.